You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 452. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 10th of December, 2020. In today's episode, a Boeing 777 suffers an engine failure after taking off in Okinawa. A light aircraft makes a safe emergency landing on a major highway near Minneapolis. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, The Legend. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 452 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation in New York City. Yes, and you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover the latest in aviation news and answer your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, and Joining me from her lakeside studio in South, it's a doctor, a skydiver, a marathon runner, a strength training junkie, an IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstapping jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Nice to see you guys this afternoon. Looking forward to a great show. Sweet. And also joining us from his... Home studio in the Valley of the Sun. World traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It is Miami Rick. Hello, everybody. Happy to be back. Happy to see you all. Looking forward to another great one. Very nice. And also, last but not least, from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, retired captain. For an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Two weeks to Christmas. Woo! <laughs> now remember, we don't say Merry Christmas yet, though. Thought, uh, have you learned your lesson from the last show? Well, probably. Except, uh, I'm. <laughs> you have yeah. to remind me. <laughs> he hasn't. He hasn't learned his lesson. Let's go to the news. Well, Twelve days of Christmas. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know. And by for news. Thank you, Paul Harvey. And the first item is sad news. Um, let's see. Retired Air Force Brigadier General Charles Chuck Yeager, the World War II fighter pilot ace and quintessential test pilot who showed he had the right stuff when in 1947 he became the first person to fly faster than the speed of sound, has died. 
He was 97 years old. Very long life. Yeager died Monday, NASA Administrator Jim Brindenstein said in a statement calling the death a tremendous loss to our nation. General Yeager's pioneering and innovative spirit advanced America's abilities in the sky and set our nation's dreams soaring into the jet age and the space age. He said, you don't concentrate on risks, you concentrate on results. No risk is too great to prevent the necessary job from getting done, Brendan Steen or Stein said in a statement. And that's really all we're going to say about it at this point, because Captain Nick will be covering his life story in detail in today's Plain Tale. And I'm looking forward to that. Look forward to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to jump right on in to item two in our news. And an Air Djibouti Boeing. Djibouti. 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 Yes. Air Djibouti. Shake Djibouti. Djibouti. It's fine, thanks. Swinging free. (laughs) An Air Djibouti Boeing 737-500 registration Echo Yankee 560 performing flight 206 from Hargeza? Hargeza? I don't know. In somewhere in Somalia to Garo or Garo uh, in uh, Garoui. Some, Garoui. Yeah. Is that what, what it is? Or are you just guessing? I think so. I've never, never been, been to Somalia. Okay. I've been to Djibouti as well, but never been to those places. But you do speak the language, so I'm going to have to go with your... Fluent, fluently, fluently, yeah. <laughs> um, With 39 passengers and five crew landed at that G word, uh, the capital of Puntland. Uh, airport's runway four at about 9.30 local time, but suffered the collapse there somewhere. of the right main, the right-hand main gear at low Nick, speed. We'll figure it out. <laughs> the aircraft of your staff, figure out the pronunciation of that, would you? All right. Well, while I continue here, uh, the aircraft veered to the right. <laughs> She's working on it, she said. The aircraft veered to the right. But uh, came to stop within the runway edge, resting on a right-hand engine, left main, and nose gear. There were no injuries. The passengers disembarked and evacuated under the runway and were taken to the terminal. The flight had originated in Djibouti and was destined for Mogadishu in Somalia with intermediate stops in those two other cities that we had just previously mentioned. <laughs> uh, let's see. The runway uh, of the uh, accident, uh, an asphalt runway, 2,000 meters, 6,600 feet length. So not not too bad. Not, not exactly long. No, but not necessarily that but, short either. But not necessarily that short either. That's yeah. Um, let's see. The airline st- stated this morning, December 2nd, around 9 a.m., a Boeing 737 of Air Djibouti uh, left the runway when it landed at the Garoué Puntland Airport following a tire problem. An incident that did not cause any injuries. No injuries among the 39 passengers and five crew members. Let me restate that. Okay, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to share my screen and show you some pictures of this event. And uh, let's see, here we go. And and share. Okay, there you go. Are you all seeing that? So yep. there's the Air Jovi mm-hmm. uh, 737-500 uh, resting on its right uh, engine and there's another view of it from there you can kind of see the tire collapse gear um, in mm. the in the background uh, I guess I didn't read that part of the story they said that the the fire truck um, 
and firefighting capability. Apparently, that's it right there. You see the fire truck; it doesn't have a front mm-hmm. right tire, and it's, it's been that way for some... two months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah. yeah, I don't think important um, bits there. If it's going to respond to a my my airline incident. would not let us operate into that airport without yeah an operating fire truck. No, it's it's, it's exactly right, and uh, it's interesting you say that because it's um one of the major um, uh, things that we. Uh, well, not 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 us as pilots. Well, obviously us as pilots, but uh, dispatch departments all over. Uh, airport has to be obviously first there. There's got to be a runway you know, operable. You know, some kind of instrument approach procedure if the weather's going to be below you know a VMC. But also, uh, you need to have the facilities to deal with um, incidents and accidents should they happen. And so there's different uh, classifications uh, when it comes to that. And um, by the looks of that uh, fire engine there, um. I don't know what the deal is with that uh, with that particular airport. I don't either. Uh, <laughs> right. Sorry, Jeff. Park it, <laughs> yeah, it up against the runway, so at least they can squirt. You've got to crash in the right spot, but at least they can give you a squirt if you're lucky. Exactly, exactly. Hey, Liz, can you remove the uh, news uh, thing because For we can't audio, see <laughs> audio only listeners um, <laughs> who are wondering why Jeff is laughing. It's because the the news banner is right in front of my face, so I was trying to you know, sneak my head up into the side so I could keep. You know. Oh, it's not your fault, Liz. I couldn't Liz. see anyone. I had this big fault. news banner in front of my face. <laughs> anyway, um, so I'm, I'm looking at this story and thinking, what what could have happened here? Let's, there's the runway, uh, 422, 6,600 feet long. And, uh, oh, what's this? Hmm. That's the um, <laughs> that's the edge of the runway there. <laughs> mm. Looks like. There's some tire marks on it? Yeah. Some some tire yeah. marks. I can kind of see why the right main gear collapsed. Shouldn't there be that a would, sign uh, there that saying would, "Warning yeah. ramp"? <laughs> that would do it. Yeah. That would do it. Yeah, uh, and, you know. uh, I mean, and, and, and it goes to say, I mean, as as we were talking about a little bit earlier here, I mean, sixty six hundred feet. It's not exactly a long runway, but it's not a short. I mean, I can. I we used to put the seven sixty seven at uh, max landing weight. On a what was it a fifty seven hundred uh, foot long runway down in uh, southern Brazil? It yeah. had to be obviously at you know it was it was sea level and when you you had to have every uh, stopping mechanism uh, you know available. You, nothing could be uh, written up or DDG as far as as, uh, as reversers and auto brakes. And so you'd come in there flaps thirty maximum flap uh, auto brake max auto. Uh, both reversers had to be operable and the auto speed brake had to be operable as well. Um, uh, and and it would stop at you know three quarters of the way down the runway, so, uh, so it's really not not an issue. But I can see how uh, the guy perhaps uh, ducked under a little bit and uh, mm. you know hit the uh, hit the edge there. And, and I wonder. I mean, I I don't uh, I don't know if that if that runway has any kind of uh, visual approach path indicator or uh, I, don't um, I don't know. But um, yeah, that would you know hitting the uh, hitting the edge of the runway that way would certainly uh, would certainly do it. We'll see. Um, I've got a question, Jeff. Yeah, go ahead. Don't you sometimes work into uh, airfields that are, what is the term, unmanned? So you turn the lights on yourself mm-hmm. using radio and right. their municipal ones. And there's no fire coverage there, isn't there? Uh, I mean, they might be in the local town, but there has to the be airfield. there has to be some kind of uh, capability, a minimum capability, or else we would yeah. not operate. Even when the tower's not operating, there's usually firefighting, mm-hmm. um, air air rescue firefighting well, on the airfield. Capa- yes, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. 
Um, yeah, that's uh, one of those airports was uh, was uh, Huntsville. Actually, you know, we we would operate out of there, um, at, you know, middle in the middle of the night, both on you know leaving and and arriving, and uh, we would turn on the uh, the runway lights and approach lights and all that stuff that way with the uh, my keying the mic. And it was funny. We, you would you would make the um, your uh, your standard you know uh, general aviation radio calls, but you were flying a seven forty seven. So it's uh, <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's exactly exactly as Jeff says. Uh, the the um, um, rescue and firefighting equipment is on the field, and it has to be available. Now I don't I don't I think in some airfields um, when the tower is closed. And even though the rescue and firefighting uh, services are there, the the uh, classification actually goes down because response times uh, response time goes down. Yeah, I think they have to respond like within three hours or something. Uh, something, <laughs> Hopefully, uh, something <laughs> you know, the next day <laughs> or eight hours. I don't know. I get yeah. confused. <laughs> Whenever but, they wake uh, up in the morning, the bodies. Well, cold. looks like there was an incident. Let's head down <laughs> to the airport. What's that smoke? Yeah. No, over but there? but but RFS <laughs> RFS is on the field. Absolutely. <laughs> And so, uh, Rick, for your um, convenience, I put that uh, picture back up of Google Earth and the uh, runway there. So if you can tell us whether or not you can see any pappies on there, uh, that would answer that question. Actually, <laughs> I, I uh, not only do I see pappies, but I see vassies, and they're co-located. Oh, so, there you uh, go. So, All right. Know, very, Just very trying to be helpful. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Sure. You know me. Trying to be ever helpful. All right. That's all we can say about that uh, Djibouti. Mm. Um, see an Air Sangha de Havilland DHC 6300 registration Papa 2 Alpha Mike Sierra performing a flight from unknown point of origin to unknown point of destination <laughs> in Papua New Guinea. That, I swear that's what it says. I'm not making that up. No, um, yeah, yeah. very specific. Very specific. Yeah. It was flying somewhere down there in Papua New Guinea. In Papua New Guinea. Yes. It was operating at the uh, Wobagan Airport in the western province, but went off the runway. The nose gear collapsed. And Liz, if you'll uh, show there, look at that. Oh, that is sad, isn't it? Sad twin otter. Yeah. 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 Papua New Guinea's AIC reported information provided the AIC indicates that as a result of the occurrence, a child resulted injured and the aircraft sustained damage. The child was later airlifted to a hospital in Kiunga to receive medical attention. That's a shame that uh, a child was mm. injured in this accident. Yeah, that is sad. Does, just thought, as they were uh, operating at this airport, doesn't say where they whether they were arriving or departing? Mm-mm. That's... All the information very we have. Very sketchy on the facts. Very, as Liz wow. says, yes, very sketchy on the facts. So, Liz, mm-hmm. next time, would you try to give us more facts? Well, I did look up this particular airstrip in okay. Papua New Guinea. It's, <laughs> speaking of short runways, 1,969 feet by 98 feet wide. Ooh. Oh, like wow. So that is, Yikes. And it's at an elevation around. of 6,000 feet. My goodness. So you're, oh, wow. So you're landing yeah. on a High postage short. stand, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is some of the hardest flying, I think, in the world. Oh, yeah. Down. Absolutely. I I mean I have nothing but respect for 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 guys and gals that do that kind of flying, you know, and you know, cutting their teeth out there, getting that those the, that flight experience. And I tell you, I mean, as 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 um, heavy um, uh, aircraft drivers and you know jet air uh, jet airliner drivers, it's it's just the it's the easy end of the job. It's it's mm-hmm. it's it's getting it's getting the air. That's the hard part for some for some of these uh, uh, you know young and, and upcoming pilots, and it's uh, it's tough. I mean, the hardest thing I ever did was really. Uh, 
pales in comparison to uh, a lot of the flying that these people do. And it's just, I just find it amazing. Have you ever seen the uh, YouTube channel? Uh, I think it's called missionary pilot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's all absolutely. this, all this kind of flying down there. It's, it's yeah. amazing. It's like, yeah. Whoa, I'm, I'd never do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Twin it's, it's for that, flying, but, isn't it? yeah, yeah, it's still minimal aids. Often uh, really weird conditions, and the weather out there, hot and humid, but often very steamy and uh, cloudy. Uh, and, of course, there's uh, added health problems in a place like PNG. It's got one of the highest malarial rates in the world. Mm-hmm. So if you're living and working out there, yeah, you've really got to look after yourself. Oh, absolutely. I remember uh, you know, a, a lot of times we'll, we'll get um, uh, we'll get um, guys and gals that come over to our airline um, with this kind of experience, not not immediately after leaving this kind of flying, but after a couple of years, so they'll they'll come on with uh, with uh, our out- outfit, and it's um, uh, you know, they click the autopilot off, and uh, man, I tell you, that is that is some handling that they can they can fly. They that probably have like, serious like, hand flying skills oh, from doing yeah, all that yeah. stuff. It's unbelievable, mm-hmm. unbelievable. You know, speaking, so, uh, speaking so, of serious, nothing but respect. Hand flying skills. I, I don't mean to. Um, scare you at all nick but there's an airplane flying very close to your head it looks like some kind of a bush airplane right or something head, actually, right through one ear yeah i know yeah. he keeps skimming the back of my hair yeah, it's, it's a close call it looks like um it is yeah thought you needed a haircut with it perhaps i need to sit Probably. down a bit there you go How's okay. that? <laughs> if you if you want to know what we're talking about you'll you'll have to look a little bit at the uh at the video to see i've the, got new toy you see <laughs> i've got new toy to play with that's always fun okay <laughs> Uh, that's about it for that one until we get more information about what the heck mm-hmm. was going on. Um, item D, another accident. Uh, Calm Air Avions de Transport Regional. Okay, somebody help me out. Calm Air. And Avion? they were flying an ATR. <laughs> Aviation Regional Transport. Yes. Transport. Yeah, just ATR. Just come on, <laughs> Steph, give us our, your best French accent. I just did. Avion de transport regional. Very good. I screwed that one up. ATR 42-300. Registration, Charlie. There's French French speakers in the the chat room. They'll tell me how terrible it is. Oh, okay. Well, they always do. Uh, Charlie Foxtrot Alpha Foxtrot Sierra. Performing freight flight 464 from Rankin Inlet, NU to Naj. Pardon me? New Brunswick? Nunavut Territory, yes. Oh, the Nunavut Territory? Yeah, that's oh. what NU is. Oh, okay. Thank you. Our resident Canadian is telling me in my ear what that is. Uh, to another place in uh, that territory uh, with three Najat. crew. On, what? Najat? Najat? Najat. Najat. Uh, with three crew on board, landed on Najat's um, former Repulse Bay's runway 34, 3,400 feet long, at about 1324 local time, but veered right off the runway and came to a stop with all gear off the runway on soft ground. There were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. The airline reported at about 1.30 local time today, a cargo flight operated by Calm Air left the runway. No passengers were on board, and the crew are receiving medical evaluations. Calm Air has informed Transport Canada and the Transportation Safety Board of the incident. And looking at the weather here, doesn't look like it was too bad. I mean, it's cold, obviously, minus 23. Yeah, and it's chilly. <laughs> But high scattered clouds at 15,000 feet, um, winds don't look like they were, you know, bad at all. So, I don't know. Oh. Wonder about the runway condition. 
Um, does it have that on here? I don't it, think so. No, no, no icons on this. So yeah, I don't didn't see any. Uh, Probably looks a little maybe covered with. I mean, depend, snow and ice. Just based on what the picture looks like, if that's fairly recent after the uh, incident occurred, mm-hmm. looks snowy. Yeah, it does. Yeah, icy. So that's probably what happened. Just a slick runway, and then just uh, went sliding up, sliding off of it. All right. Yeah. That's all we know about that one. Um, it's interesting. But um, before we move, move uh, we move on from this one. I mean, I don't know if it's if it's something that uh, that you guys have done in in your uh, in your uh, uh, specific operations when flying with um, se- either severe crosswinds or um, when uh, conditions are very very icy outside. At least um, with the way we do it, so you got to be very, very careful with the application of reverse thrust because um, some airplanes reverse thrust is actuated hydraulically, and some airplanes it's actuated pneumatically. And so you want to make sure that when reverse thrust comes on, you um, you apply them um, symmetrically, and, and really the, the deployment has to be symmetric. Uh, you got to make sure that they're both deployed before. You uh, actually rev the engines up in reverse thrust because if the uh, field conditions are less than optimum, uh, something like this can happen. I'm not saying that this is what happened, but uh, got to be really, really careful when it comes to uh, application of reverse thrust in uh, icy conditions. We never had to worry about that on the uh, Mad Dog at all. Never had any yeah, no. problems with that. Nope, no problems. <laughs> New York City, LaGuardia. Um, yep. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Let's move on. I don't know. Have you all ever seen an impressive zipper merge? Well, I mean, that's what I do on the highway every day. Hang around zipper me, merge. and you'll you'll see a, an impressive zipper merge. Um, it's caught in my zipper, Jeff. A light aircraft makes a nighttime landing on U.S. highway. And uh, let's see. Before you play the video, Liz, let's tell you. Set it up a little bit. Um, a light aircraft has made a dramatic emergency landing on an interstate as cars cruise down the highway at night. Video footage posted on Twitter by the Minnesota Department of Transportation showed the pilot touchdown while traveling at the same speed. And I put in there, well, it's pretty close. I think they were going. he was going a little bit faster than the uh, traffic as vehicles ahead and behind. The single-propeller plane appeared to have suffered an engine failure, the Ramsey County Depe- Deputies Federation said on Facebook. Alongside images of the craft smashed into the hood of an SUV. No one was injured in the accident on Wednesday night on Interstate 35 West, a major highway in the Minneapolis area city of Arden Hills. The road was blocked for several hours, but reopened to traffic on Thursday morning. Um, they added the pilot was cited for improper lane change and not using his turn signal. <laughs> No, yeah, that he didn't, pay the, uh, didn't pay the toll either. So, <laughs> so go ahead and Those play. pilots are the worst. Seriously. There's only like. Can't you know, use hand signals? Uh, yeah, I don't know. See, I can't see his hand. I don't think his hand's out the window. And oh, he touches down. Oh, oh, and now he's going to get. There's the illegal lane change and pass. Oh, smack. Oh, yeah, he hit the car right there. And so nearly got away with it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he almost did. You want to play it one more time? Almost did. Yeah, here we go. It's great footage, though. Look at that. Yeah, that right yeah tell you, had that car not been there, he would have. Uh, he would have been, been fine. I know. Yeah, I'd say it's but a there's, car's there's fault. always that car. Always that <laughs> yeah. car. All right, that was impressive. Getting in the way of us airplane drivers. It's an impressive. Zipper. I don't know how dare they. <laughs> I know you'd appreciated that, uh, Liz. That impressive zipper merge. 
Um, um, <laughs> let's see here. We've got a couple other pictures I'll share with you here. Um, there is the SUV that it ended up uh, hitting. And uh, let's see, I think there's another view of the front end of the airplane. So that's doesn't look like a heck of a lot of damage, but I don't know. That's probably totaled. I mean, yeah, the, the, the prop mm, is the props all been. The engine is completely done. So, oh, man, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's going to take talking, some. Yeah. We're talking a nice chunk of change to get that thing airworthy again. I'll bet. I'll bet. Anyway, it's pretty impressive. I'm glad that they had the cam. The security camera was right there because we got to look at it and go, ooh, nice, impressive. Yeah. Cameras everywhere. These yes, cameras are everywhere these days, Lou says. Mm, they really are. Okay. Um, Good job avoiding all those. Um, just the the light posts, though. Oh yeah. Try and line up and steer clear of those. And, yeah. So, have you ever had issues with that when you were landing on highways, um, stuff? All the time. All the time. It's pesky. <laughs> it's pesky light poles and power lines and overpasses. bridges. And overpasses. Pesky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes the zipper merge a little tricky. No, fortunately, not gonna would not ever had that situation. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, me neither. Goodness. All right, moving on. Five. Final report. No, not five. F. Um, final report. Incident. Scoot. Uh, Boeing 787-900. Registration 9. Victor Oscar Juliet Echo. Performing flight 16 from Singapore to Perth, Australia, Western Australia with 356 passengers and 11 crew, was descending towards Perth when the right-hand engine, a Trent 1000, shut down without command. The crew continued the approach for a safe landing on Perth's runway 21. The return flight was canceled. The passengers were rebooked onto other flights. I wonder why they canceled the next flight. Um, while descending into Perth, there was an uncommanded in-flight shutdown of the engine, according to Australia's TSB. The flight crew continued their... Pro this is the same thing I just read. Okay. Uh, on December 1st, 2020, the Australian Transportation Safety Board released their final report, concluding the probable causes of the incident were... Following a series of status and alert messages related to the aircraft's right engine, the engine shut down during descent. The flight crew followed the appropriate procedures and landed the aircraft safely using the operational engine. The engine shutdown was a result of insufficient fuel delivery due to low pressure in the fuel metering valve servo assembly as debris from worn fuel pump bearings had blocked its inlet filter. The engine manufacturer, Rolls-Royce, identified that between late 2018 and early 2019, the operator's fleet of 787 aircraft were particularly susceptible to low-life wear in the journal bearings of the secondary high-pressure fuel pump. Um, fuel pump. Um, so what they did, I'll try to summarize this a little bit. They started you know, comparing um, other airlines operating this same engine and in the same kind of uh, geographic area and same sort of short flights and that kind of thing and they didn't see any um they didn't see any um like issues uh with other companies and uh, they did a lot of research on this trying to figure out why it seemed to be only happening to scoot uh air airs um 787s they um looked at the manufacturing date and manufacturing run of these uh, hydromechanical units and fuel flow servos and that kind of thing. And they were 
like not in any one particular lot and any and other airlines that had the same type of part uh same date same same run uh didn't have any issues with them either so the bottom line I, i read through this whole thing and they as i said they did a lot of um research to see if they could figure out exactly what happened in this situation and the conclusion is um they have no idea yeah now it's it's um and we have another another um piece of um of uh, feedback here about a um uh, a similar um aircraft with an engine issue and that's uh the beauty about this uh these triple sevens and seven eight sevens um is that um there's a system on board called the TAC, the Thrust Asymmetry uh, Compensation System or Thrust Asymmetry Computer. And so what the system does is it, it constantly compares um, the, uh, at least on Pratt Whitney and, and GE engines, which is what I've flown, uh, it constantly compares the uh, rotational velocity of your uh, low pressure compressor, so your N1. So anytime there's more than a 10% delta, 10% difference between right and left, the rudder will automatically come in and um, compensate for that dissimilar thrust. Another interesting thing about triple uh, sevens and seven eight sevens is that the auto throttle system is independent. Uh, so you have an, uh, an auto throttle system for the left engine and one for the right engine. So you can do uh, basically auto lands category three uh, fail passive auto lands. Uh, just on on a single engine because the auto throttle controls each engine separately. So uh, uh, that is really uh, flying around single engine in one of these. It's uh, it's really a non-issue. Uh, you just you know you just just let the tack take over uh, and uh, you just 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 land normally. Now the one difference in the tack between the triple seven and the seven eight seven is that uh, it's the way the tack behaves on the ground. So on the triple seven. If an engine fails on the takeoff run, uh, the TAC will only apply enough rudder to help the pilot identify which engine has failed. Whereas in the 787, the uh, the rudder will go in all the way to compensate for that dissimilar thrust. So it'll it'll actually keep uh, the airplane going straight uh, with the engine failed at takeoff thrust. Now a lot of uh, the, the question that a lot of uh, a lot of times I get. Is that uh, well? Uh, what happens if the tack fails? Well, it, and actually, on on the type rating ride uh, for both the triple seven and the seven eight seven, what they do is they'll give you a, a severe damage or separation. So basically, they'll they'll blow the engine off the wing, and at that point, the tack disconnects itself because remember the tack uses the uh, the comparison in in uh, in N one deltas to um, see how much oh there you go to see how much uh, how much rudder is required so uh, if the engine uh, you know blows off the wing there's no more comparison so the tag goes well I don't know what's going on so you're on your own so uh, you actually have to put in the, the rudder in by yourself there which is no big deal either because the 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 rudder on the triple seven and the seven eight seven are very very powerful. So uh, on the triple seven even more so because the uh, the the lower part of the rudder is actually double hinged uh, because each engine puts out one hundred fifteen thousand pounds of thrust uh, at least in the G nineties uh, that I've flown. So uh, uh, you know dissimilar thrust can be an issue if you let it. But uh, but this you know flying ar- flying around single engine on a seven eight seven, nah, no big deal. We're going to talk about single engine on a triple seven here in a yes, couple. News items from now. That's right. Uh, good point. Um, 
yeah, I just thought it was kind of odd that after all of this, they weren't able to figure out why these journal bearings were wearing just on Scoot Air's fleet of 787s and nobody else's. Just kind of weird. Yeah, it does seem a bit weird, doesn't it, Jeff? Uh, I'm just wondering if there were maintenance routines that Scoot had that were different, but I'm sure they would have looked at they that. did. They actually did say on here that they looked at all that, including maintenance procedures and everything else, and they said nothing was really that much different from anybody else's. Now, yeah. is, isn't is isn't Scoot Airlines the the I guess the short haul uh, airline for because uh, I, I believe it, it's isn't it part of Singapore Airlines? Yeah, they're I think. Um, I'm not, I'm the not. low cost airline, which is a subsidiary of Singapore Airlines. So, do they do a lot more uh, short hop type stuff? Or I I would assume so, but this wasn't yeah. short hop. Yeah, you know, that's true. Um, sure. From Singapore to Perth. Oh, I don't know. I would maybe that's considered well, a long I mean, uh, haul world is a short flight from Singapore to Perth. Uh, Singapore to Perth is not you know not that's not exactly not not it's not that far. I mean it's a, it's it's a couple hours, but it's not mm-hmm. you know. But I, but then again, I I don't. I mean, I'm just I'm just spitballing here. I don't know. Yeah, it's an issue or not. But uh, well, they I think they said they compared it with other airlines that operate the airplane in kind of those short distances as well, and. Um, they still couldn't come up with any reason why these particular uh, fuel metering valves were getting gummed up um, more quickly than anybody else's. So, anyway, hopefully, uh, you know, they won't have this issue anymore. But they were aware of it, and uh, that's uh, basically the bottom line. Yeah, Kaya here says that uh, um, she knows Scoot. They, they were they were one of her customers at Panasonic Avionics when she used to work there, and she says, "Yep, it's part of Singapore Air." Ah, okay. Yep. Very good. Very good. And, uh, Owen says that's definitely not short haul. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> he probably gets uh, has to do three uh, three meals, uh, three courses. I don't. How long would Lots that flight be? I wonder. Singapore to uh, Perth. Perth to Singapore? Oh, five or six hours, I would have thought. Oh. Yeah, I think something like that. Yeah. Something okay. like that. I'll uh, well, see here. But uh, worse going uh, home, about so up to Singapore as you're heading into the subtropical one of those jet. Mysteries. An aviation mystery. One of the mysteries of aviation life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Liz. All right. Uh, item G. This is a fun one. Um, during the weekend, and this is from a, um, is it a Twitter account, I think, from Jack Deck, J-A-C-D-E-C, whatever that stands for. Um, an Airbus A320neo of Vistara got into a beat of a trouble. Beat of trouble. Oh, they're trying to be clever. A swarm of bees attacked the aircraft and couldn't be humanely removed. The Kolkata's International Airport authorities had to deploy a fire truck to get one-on-one with the flying swarm of bugs. And we have some video. Goodness, they had a working fire truck. Yeah, they did have a working fire truck at this airport, at least one, uh, which we'll see here in the video. So uh, go ahead and play. It's noisy. It's an airport, of course. You're expecting it to be noisy. I'll turn the volume down a little bit because it's not critical that we really hear the jet noise on this video. Um, so there's a big, huge clump of bees on the very front right side of the aircraft, just aft of the uh, R1 door. 
and now they're using the uh, fire truck with uh, water. Kind of nice and gentle. I mean, they didn't use like super high pressure. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting what they're saying. Maybe somebody that speaks Indian. Ah, yeah, I see what he's saying. He said, wow, lots of bees. <laughs> I was expecting to hear some screams of, of bees stinging humans on that, but I didn't <laughs> I hear it. They're any. all too busy doing the breaststroke. No. <laughs> yeah. But the, it's interesting, it was in India, you know, where they venerate all life and they let the cows wander around and stuff. Mm. So I guess, like, they venerate the bees, too. They wouldn't kill mm. them. Yeah. Did you did you hear Liz at all? Or was it just me? No, it was just she. She. Just you. She was she was saying it was interesting that in in India that they you know they venerate a, a lot of animals like cows and that kind of stuff and and perhaps mm -hmm. they they venerate or whatever uh, protect other forms of life like bees because it was although they did say here at the very beginning of this article that they they tried to find a way to. Remain, uh, remove these bees humanely, but then they had to revert to deploying a fire truck. Well, the usual thing is to get a bee handler to come along and yeah. they find the queen, mm -hmm. which is what this swarm will be following. Mm -hmm. uh, and because bee um, swarms are quite valuable, they uh, usually make an effort to uh, get them all into a box and uh, take them away. It seems a bit... Uh, because, uh, I mean, bees can't really survive a huge downpour like that. They'll uh, probably mostly get to uh, yeah. uh, die as a result mm -hmm. of that. Well, it said, mm -hmm. Later in this article, it says that uh, you would think that this event only happened once during the day. But no, according to the Times of India, another Vistara aircraft was surrounded by bees on Monday. The aircraft, another 320neo. Um, let's see. What they have in common is that both airplanes were parked around the same place, Bay 25. Unlike the first incident, the second bee attack wasn't recorded and posted on social media. Additionally, no one was hurt. Well, except for the bees. None of the planes had passengers when the bees swarmed them. Um, according to the airport director of the airport, on both occasions, fire brigade personnel sprayed water from water cannons on the swarm of bees to drive them away. Following the back-to-back -back incidents, a team of officials from Kolkata Airport searched the area and sprayed insecticide in the surrounding places. However, even after an extensive search, no beehives were spotted in the zone. So, hmm. I don't know. Well, they can swarm quite a distance, I think, when, when they decide to spread out. Mm -hmm. you know, they didn't look hard. queen heads tank. off, and yeah, they can go quite a long way. Okay. And Why they, they all chose send an out, Airbus? They send a text must... message to all the bees, and the bees come back to the <laughs> yeah, predetermined that's meeting exactly spot. Exactly right. Yep. <laughs> okay. yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, that. that must be a very attractive uh, airplane, that Airbus. <laughs> lovely. <laughs> At least to bees. It took four yes. and a half hours in the help of a beekeeper, but the flight eventually took off. This is, a, oh, an incident in 2017 in New York at JFK. Um, a similar situation occurred. Um, but they, they deplaned the passengers, and they ended up getting a beekeeper to come in and take care of the situation. Yeah, they're, very, they're very sweet, those Airbuses, I hear. They must be. All right. Well, I thought that was kind of an interesting story. Here's a good one. Well, not really a good one, but a happy ending. Um, a Japan Airlines 777-200 registration JA8978 
performing flight 904 from Okinawa to Tokyo Haneda uh, with 178 passengers and 11 crew was climbing out of Okinawa when the left-hand engine, a Pratt & Whitney 4084, failed and its access doors ripped off with huge noises, prompting the crew to stop the climb at flight level 190 and return to Okinawa for a safe landing about 35 minutes after departure. The aircraft stopped on the runway and was subsequently towed to the apron. Uh, the Japan's Ministry of Transport rated the occurrence a serious incident, yeah, I'd say, uh, Japan's TSB have dispatched investigators on site and opened an investigation. The ministry reported one of the fan blades of the left-hand engine was damaged at the route. Passengers reported there was a bang and a sudden noise. The captain subsequently announced the left-hand engine had suffered damage, and they were returning to uh, from their liftoff point in Okinawa uh, on one engine only. And there is a YouTube video here, and I ended up taking out of it was like a seven more than seven minute video and i kind of reduced it down to about three and a half minutes so uh, liz if you'll play that for us here we go yeah it's a great scene it's big in this case pratt whitney's And if you guys want to make any comments, uh, you can unmute your mics. V1. Rotate. We're looking at nice hangers out the window. The uh, video has been taken from the right forward portion of the 777 cabin. Nice view of the Okinawa airport below. And I don't think the person taking the or filming this caught the actual moment where the engine exploded because it kind of jumps to this segment where the flight attendant is making a PA, telling people not to um, not to freak out, not to panic. Yeah, please stop shaking there. Yeah, the airplane is shaking pretty violently. I think she, she, we can hear her say something about vibration. Vibration. <laughs> yeah. Looks like the good engine out the right side there. Doing its job. That's the good one. Yep. And then uh, now I kind of fast forwarded to the point where the captain comes on and makes a PA. I do not speak Japanese, so I have no idea what he's saying. Steph can translate. Steph, yeah, Liz says Steph can translate this. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had a yeah, slight this, this problem. Is speaking. As you may have noticed, we have a small technical issue, which we will be returning as precautionary measure to. Perfect. That's exactly what he said. Thank you, Scott. Look at the shaking here on the end. Yeah. Like a washing machine, you know, that has, like, a, the load is unbalanced. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Except for it's a lot bigger than a, a washing machine. 
And at this point, that's just the engine uh, uh, just windmilling. It just obviously yep. the engine is off at this point. Right. Um, so uh, by this by this time, the they've obviously gone through all the emergency uh, procedures, shut the engine down. They have the APU running, so they have that generator going. Obviously, the good engine's running. So. And again, as I as I mentioned earlier. Um, the thrust symmetry compensation system it just takes care of the rest he just just does a fantastic job for you it takes all the guesswork out of flying single engine like magic yeah and then here we go we're coming to a stop on the run line looks like they're right on the center line yep yep they do have working fire trucks here at this airport but yeah, saw a couple as we, as we were about to land. You could see them on the uh, one of the reverse high speeds. Anyway, mm-hmm. so job well done and well handled by yeah, that crew. Mm-hmm. The only thing, the only cool thing about these triple seven seven eights is that they have uh, what's called the EFB, the electronic, uh, not the EFB, the electronic uh, check of the ECL. So yeah, so uh, as you go, as as the when a problem presents itself, um, the system will sense that. And it'll present you with the appropriate checklist. And obviously, you have to make sure that's the checklist that applies. And, and, and if it is, you start going down the checklist. Uh, you click on each item. And as you accomplish each, each, uh, each part of the checklist, uh, it, uh, if it's something that the system can sense. So, so on the 777, you have what's called open loop items and closed loop items. So um, closed loop items are items which the uh, aircraft can sense through its logic. So the position of a switch or uh, a, uh, a, a temperature or, uh, or a position of a, of, of a flight control surface or something like that. And an open loop item is something that you have to um, tell the system that you've done. Uh, so oh, it's, it just takes all the guesswork out of, uh, out of uh, doing so checklists. Uh, so is just, just a missing can foul open uh, can foul? <laughs> foul. I don't know what a can foul is. Cow. Uh, an mm-hmm. open loop or a closed loop? Uh, an open, open fan <laughs> cow. <laughs> I mean, I tell you, I mean, uh, a a uh, well, you know, a a, a missing uh, a missing a compressor blade is certainly mm-hmm. a uh, you know it's got to be an open loop. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I'm um, just 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 going down just going down the checklist item by item really takes all the guesswork out of because. I mean, going back to older airplanes where you actually have to pull out the checklist and read the checklist very, very carefully. And it's very easy to get, you get to these points where the checklist kind of, you get to a fork in the road and you have to make sure you go down the right one. Because if you go down the wrong one, you yeah. can end up with a completely new set of problems that are completely unrelated to the problem at hand. I can and you end up emergency. the problem with this engine, there's a bloke in it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what, that's what it was, and a big yeah. hole behind those uh, inlet guide vanes <laughs> yeah. or those. Well, that's how we got in, obviously. Oh, okay. exactly. Yeah. So, um, but like I said, these these you know flying single engine in one of these things is no big deal at all. No big deal. <laughs> Whatever. Why are we even talking about big it? engines? Aren't they big engines? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Size of the seven thirty seven. All right. Well, as I said, job well done by the uh, professional. Pilots and flight attendants at Japan Airlines. And finally, we have this uh, in military news in Australia. Let's see. Two pilots have been... You know what would be better? Well, let's just play the video because I think they do a pretty good job of explaining this. Uh, Two pilots slam into the ground almost in unison. Their now unmanned jet rolls off the runway 
and digs into a ditch. This is a rare glimpse into an unfolding Air Force emergency involving our nation's premier fighter jet. This is a, a sophisticated piece of machinery uh, and it's uh, an incident that's occurred at the one of the most critical points uh, I know or that, phases Blake. of flight. It's the first time Australian Air Force pilots have been captured ejecting from an aircraft. They survived what was a high-risk on-land ejection. They were assessed by medical immediately after the incident and uh, and now reported as being well. With the immediate emergency over, focus now shifts to the investigation. A specialist team flown in to begin work. What we know is that at around 2.30pm, Super Hornet number A44223 was third in a line of seven aircraft to take off from Ambly, loaded and with external fuel tanks. Full power was applied, but 300 metres down the runway, a malfunction occurred, possibly an engine failure. The rocket-propelled ejection system was triggered, sending the two pilots shooting into the air. Former fighter pilot Chris Mills has flown the aircraft in question. The accident rate of the um, RWS um, uh, Hornet operations are remarkable in the low loss rates they've had. He believes a double engine failure forced the quick call to eject. I've never seen an accident like this one where the pilots have jumped out, the aircraft is still rolling and comes to a stop. Until the answers come, 24 Super Hornets have been grounded along with 11 Growler jet fighters that share the same engine. We have grounded the Growler and also the Super Hornet fleet for an abundance of caution. Throughout the day, very little activity has occurred around the damaged aircraft itself, but this $75 million Super Hornet will be subject to extreme scrutiny, as will the actions of the pilot and everyone involved in trying to keep it in the air. This needs to undergo a suitable level of investigation to get the right answers so that we can um, provide the right solutions. It's too early to tell whether the aircraft can be repaired and on its last flight, only the air crew got off the ground. Tonight there is no indication of how long that Super Hornet will remain out there on the tarmac, but they have just erected some portaloos next to it, so that gives you some idea of how long they intend to be pouring over that wreckage. There's also no time frame on the grounding of the Super Hornet and Growler fleet. The Air Force saying they will be meticulous with this investigation and ensure that if there are any issues with the aircraft, they will be rectified before returning to service. The investigation will also be closely watched by other nations that operate these aircraft primarily that will be the US they have more than 600 super hornets in their navy and air force fleet i have like a lot of questions here on this mm-hmm. <laughs> um what are your questions well, captain jeff i mean was an ejection necessary in this situation i mean i wasn't there I don't know. They they uh, jumped out pretty quick. Uh, if it looked like they were going off the runway, uh, they probably would because uh, if the engine's got no power, the aircraft's got no power. It's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. They can't do much with it if uh, if they've lost all their systems and if they're sliding off the runway, uh, potentially ditches in front of them. Uh, they weren't to know that the aircraft would trundle into the ditches at low speed. It might have gone in there much faster and. Their craft could have broken up. They could have been quite badly injured. Having said that, yeah, no one ejects uh, um, lightly. We all know that you're quite likely to end up injured 
even on a very straightforward ejection. So, yeah, it's not an easy decision, I'm sure. Yeah. By the way, Mel Hopfield, the uh, senior uh, RAAF officer, uh, I first met him within days of arriving uh, in Australia when he came round uh, dressed uh, as a workman uh, and uh, claimed he was there to defumigate our house that we'd just moved into to get rid of the bugs. He said, I'm the bug man. Uh, we're here to fix your house. And uh, he uh, spent the entire afternoon, we, he claimed we couldn't go into the house, spent the entire afternoon there, and all he kept doing was asking for beer. He got another beer, mate, and uh, he Did was he there. all of your beers that afternoon? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was there, there as a joke, really, um, <laughs> and uh, to see how much beer I'd give him. <laughs> nice. Like it worked. So the, the guy that was the, uh, the official spokesperson, the air marshal or whatever. Exactly right. Yes. <laughs> I guess he wasn't the air marshal back when you were flying there, though, right? No, no. He was he was another flight lieutenant on the other squadron. <laughs> oh. So they they reckoned that uh, I knew most of the 77 guys. So he was on three squadron at the That's time. That's funny. That's Seems like those yeah. Aussies really have a great sense of humor. Uh, they're a funny bunch of guys. Yeah, you're <laughs> so, so Nick, the 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 uh, the Hornet doesn't have because you used to fly, I guess the uh, the A models, right? You had to, yeah, the, the that, A's and B's, the classics. And the, do they not have? Do they not have a uh, um, uh, accumulator brakes or reserve brakes or anything like that? Or uh, yeah, they do, but I I don't know how bad the damage was. Of course, if they um, if they came uh, engine. Uh, uncontained failure which perhaps took out the other one might well have taken out uh, the systems not nearly mm. as many backup systems uh, of course in something like that but yeah they'd have hydraulic brakes backed up by pneumatics uh, from an accumulator mm. um but uh, from memory of the classic uh hornet might have still needed hydraulic fluid pressurized by an accumulator so if you'd taken out the hydraulic pipes and the fluid had gone you wouldn't have any brakes at all right. right 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 um but uh, and you might not have any steering either because the usual thing would be to stay with the aircraft steer it down the runway put the hook down if you're worried mm -hmm. about stopping and then just trundle into the uh, overrun cable but right. uh they might have, uh, some might have said you're on fire, some might have, you know, they, I don't know. Well, we'll find out perhaps yeah. one day. Yeah. But, uh, uh, interesting thing about the parachutes, uh, multicolored because they're used as a survival aid. Whatever country, uh, whatever environment you happen to eject in, you can use a different color of the canopy to create a, make a shelter and it will either hide you or you can use it to mark your presence so that rescuers can find you uh and um amberley was the base where all the bomber pilots was they used to have f-111s up there um and uh that's where these new hornets have gone to i think the f-35s are going to my old base down there at williamtown um so mm. that's where the fighter boys are i think they said that hey, the... regarding yeah. oh sorry no go ahead i was gonna say regarding a um little side conversation that's going on in the chat room um you know just the difference between reject as in reject takeoff and eject is not very much what are the differences in the calls there well that's a, one of the reasons we in my experience we use the word stop, uh, stop. rather mm -hmm. than anything else abort or reject so yeah well first of all before i forget uh, we need to be very, very sure that we mentioned that that um, video uh, that we played was on YouTube, and it was uh, Seven News uh, in um, 
australia7news.com.au to give them credit for that. And then the other thing is, I just can't help but think that after these guys ejected and stood up and looked over to see the wreckage of the airplane and just watching the thing just kind of going <laughs> in slow motion, kind of just still rolling. And then it just kind of stops with a nose gear collapse. Thank you. Hmm. That was sent in by Ray mm. Davis. Oh, yeah. Mm. should mention that Ray Davis uh, sent us in that, uh, mm. that article. Thank you, Ray. And I just wanted to mention that just to keep, uh, keep, to keep news seven above 50%, mm -hmm. there are no super hornets in the United States Air Force's inventory. They're oh, all Navy, all Navy and huh? Marine Corps. That's true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Where is that? Okay. I know I have it somewhere. But by the time I play, it's not going to really be funny at all. So never mind. Yeah. I, I love the why, why also they uh, work out how long the investigation is going to take by the fact that there's a portaloo. <laughs> no. We set up the mobile toilets, so we're going to be here a while. So you know they're going to be here a while. Yeah, <laughs> I do love that as well. That was good. That was good. All right, it's comedy gold. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, it's time now to get to know us. Getting to know about you. Getting to like us, hoping that you'll like. Us too. See, I do actually know the words. Sometimes. Did you look them up? No. Yeah. Are you the king or the lady in the dress? Doing I that? Uh, both. It depends on my mood. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is good because we're going to be able to catch up with Steph before she has to leave for a online meeting that she's required. Yeah, I've got to work. Meeting that is not something I can get out of, so I shall be departing your presence shortly. Um, but yeah, I was actually at Jeff before we get into this. Did mm -hmm. you happen to get video from Armando? Mm, yeah. Oh, was I supposed? Did he send that to me so we can play it on the show? Yeah. Oh, okay. That wasn't made clear. Probably. Um, let me see if I can find it. I'm not sure if because well, I didn't think to send it to you until like 20 minutes ago. I went, oh. There's video. Well, I do recall that he sent me something yesterday, but I don't remember him saying that. I, I just thought it was just for my own edification, not no. something that we play no. on the show. So let me see if I can find That's it. Okay. So go ahead and vamp. Um, I forgot about it because I'll set up what this is if you can find it. If not, eh, put it in the show notes or something. Because okay. um, I couldn't remember which day we actually recorded last week. But since we recorded, I did go uh, flying with Armando. Um, for those who listened to the PTUK podcast will know that he um, also flies skydivers just on the other side of uh, the beautiful city, Queen City of Charlotte, from where I am. Um, slightly different type of drop zone, though. It's um, They fly a Cessna 182, and they've got a couple of short-ish grass strips, eh, 2,000 feet, roughly, um, that they use. And I went up there to go fly with him to get checked out in their 182, so in case they ever are in need of a pilot and things work out and... You know, um, I can fill in for them. We could do that. So, but he wanted me to come up there, get checked out, and then use some uh, airport familiarization because I don't do a lot of grass strip, short, soft field flying. Um, our uh, runways are 5,000 feet of pavement, which is more than enough for the type of aircraft that we operate. Um, so the video that we have is actually video that Armando took. We went out in the in their 182. Um, 
don't know if you found it yet or not. I, I found it, and I'm trying to put it into StreamYard, but it, it's will... too big for StreamYard video clips. I can send you a little no, video I, clip. I have, um, I have an alternative way to do this, so keep going. I'll figure it out. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so what we did, there's only, um, in that 182, um, if we do get the video playing, you'll see that a lot of things have been removed uh, for weight purposes. So there's not a lot in the plane. There's one seat for the pilot, and then everyone else sits on the floor and has uh, seat belts on the floor. So um, what we did was we just kind of briefed everything, talked through it, um, what we we're going to do in terms of familiarization with the airplane and the the um, airfield itself. So Armando went out and flew first. Um, we did a couple of takeoffs and approaches to the different runways. Um, we did a couple of landings. Uh, we worked on getting the door open and closed because it's actually very similar to the, the 182 um, at the drop zone where I am, so that wasn't too, too difficult. And then we came back and went out and I did the same thing. And then we actually took the uh, drop zone owner on a flight and he jumped out. So that was that was fun. And my thanks to Armando for uh, the opportunity to do more flying. Here's uh, Steph being so a here we're working flyer. On well, so, yeah, I have a seatbelt on, but I don't really want to be... So we're, you can see that we're both wearing um, emergency parachute rigs, which have one round um, main parachute, or one round reserve parachute in them. Um, I don't really want to have to use that ever at any point, so I did back up from the door when we Looks opened like the door. tall trees there. Yeah, so this is landing on uh, 1-3, I believe. Um, and so both runways are sloped pretty significantly, and... This runway, I think, is actually 2,400 feet, but it's about 2,000 feet of usable grass because of the tall trees on the end there. Now somebody's honking their horn. Yeah, that's the song. You must be in the way. <laughs> Baby, move it. <laughs> I think this actually goes on for four minutes or so. Um, you could probably fast forward a little bit if you wanted to. But, okay. Um, um, tell me where. Let's see. Now yeah, Steph's getting into the seat. Yeah. I'm going to fly. Uh, takes off. So taking flying off very there. fast. We, Yes. Uh, yep. Somebody somebody yeah, keeps opening the up the door, and then somebody keeps closing <laughs> it. So the way you close the door is full left rudder, and it takes it out of the uh, so from stream. there and allows it to slip wow. stream and falls down. Um, and then it's just got a little latch on the side. Shall I continue fast forwarding? Yes, yeah, so this is my... Actually, you can play here. This is okay. my landing on runway 13, which I actually thought was pretty good. So it was actually fairly... We had a crosswind, um, which kind of dies off as soon as you get down into the trees. But it makes it a little bumpy on the on the approach. Ah, somebody Very breaking nice it again. Stuff. Yep, I know. Very nice. Very. And then uh, you can probably fast forward just a tiny bit here because we're going to take the drop zone owner up and let him do a jump before we call it a day. Okay. Right here or farther? To, right here. Yeah, this is good. Okay. Play this for a moment. Have you ever heard of baseball caps? Uh, yeah, that would have been smart. Also, also sunglasses. Neither one of us had sunglasses <laughs> that day. I don't know what we were taking. <laughs> I actually forgot mine at home that morning. Must be something you said went to work before that, that upset him because he's leaving the airplane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this funny. seems to happen on a lot of aircraft that I fly. It's like, People, I'm out. Oh, look at that. Get out. Oh, he's, he's, oh, he's an old man. He flipped the bird at you. Wow. He was really upset. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He didn't do that. And then they're going, hey, where did he go? I don't know. Let's look for him. Let's run into him. <laughs> let's, let's see if we can hit him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's How did it. This landing Um, pretty. I was a little high on this one, to be honest. It'll be critical. 
You're landing on a golf course, it looks like? Yes. It kind of stopped flying right before, right about... There. Bumpers. There it is. Got it. Wow, stopped quick. Yeah, you really don't need much of that 2,000 feet of grass going uphill. I'll tell you what. Oh, and then you hit that other airplane with your right wing. Hmm. That's not good. Is there a working fire truck there? Oh, porta potty. Yep. Gonna be there a while, I guess. (laughs) 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 All right. We figured out how to play it. Sorry, I didn't have it all set up. That was great. Yeah, that was fun. Someone who actually did some flying. Wow. I know, right? But anyway, uh, that's that was the uh, big, exciting, fun stuff uh, since the last time we did a show. And beyond that, not much else going on. Just the usual. Very good. More work today. Work, 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 work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you, Steph. I guess we'll move yeah. on to the next contestant in the Getting to Know Us show. And that would be, let's... Rick. Hey, so what have I been doing? So I uh, got back from work on Saturday. Before that, I did a uh, entire week of um, well, just flying the sort. So basically, you fly from uh, some base out in the network back to Cincinnati, and then you 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 sit through the. Um, through the, uh, I guess, the wee hours of the morning while they unload the aircraft and uh, reload the aircraft, and then you head back out to your outstation. So uh, did a couple of those between uh, Houston and uh, Cincinnati. Um, first flight in Houston was a little interesting because I was supposed to, uh, I was supposed to meet up with Jeff in Houston to go get uh, a little bit of food, uh, but then I uh, found out later in the, after, after I landed that I was actually flying the sort that evening. So... Uh, I was going to need a little bit of rest. Um, so basically, we'd, we'd fly into Houston uh, in the morning, about 8.30, 9 o'clock, spend the day in Houston, fly back out to Cincinnati, get to Cincinnati about uh, 1, one two, in, 2 in the morning, and then head right back out to Houston about 6 in the morning. Uh, so did that a couple of times. Um, had to deal with uh, a little bit of weather going into Houston that first night, uh, that first uh, morning, sorry. Um, the the TAF so the uh, the the area forecast the terminal area forecast was you know clear and mailing everything was going to be great. Started getting um, uh, the uh, uh, ATIS via ACARS so the, uh, the the conditions on the field via ACARS and I start seeing that the weather is is I was like where's where's this weather coming from? And by the time we get in there, um, there were uh, aircraft in front of us reporting um, low level uh, wind shear. Uh, you know, Gain of uh, 15 knots, the loss of 15 knots, uh, short final, and uh, downdrafts and all that. So that uh, that kind of happened to us as well. So um, I uh, was telling my FO, well, it's a good thing it was my leg because like, <laughs> I'm definitely taking this one. So you do what you do. You, you know, you pad your airspeed a little bit. You go in with uh, the lower flap setting uh, in case you need to go around. And if you do, if you do go around, you obviously make sure that you brief that. And the interesting thing about going around, if you ever hit wind shear, is that Unlike any other type of go around, uh, the second you go around after wind shear, you leave the aircraft the way it is. So basically, you don't change the configuration of the plane. You just leave it the way it is and you just fly away from the ground until wind shear is no longer an issue, uh, and then you come back around landing it. But you know, thankfully, there was no uh, there was no issue. Uh, we didn't have to go around with land it, and and the trip after that was fine. 
Um, after doing all this sort flying for the week, got home on Saturday, and then um, uh, we decided to uh, go out and uh, get a 4x4. So we, um, uh, Kai and I went over and we um, uh, traded in a, a, a car we had, and we went over and got a... Uh, a um, um, a four by four car. It was actually, I was actually look. We were looking at uh, at a at a Jeep for a while there. But the thing is that we have two big German Shepherds here, and um, uh, the whole point of having this car is so that we could, you know, do the drive out to California where Kai's parents are, uh, and 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 take the dogs with us. And so it has to be something that is that is uh, big enough for these for these guys. And so uh, we we went out and got that. And then yesterday we took the car out to uh, a few trails down here and uh, tested it out. So uh, it was it was nice. So uh, did that, and now the car is full of uh, dog hair and uh, dog slobber. So that's uh, great. Oh, I love that. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's basically <laughs> been my uh, my week. I'll be uh, I'll be here till uh, Saturday. Head back out on Saturday to uh, begin a trip on Monday, uh, all the way to the 24th. So I'll be out till uh, Christmas Eve. So, uh, doing a little bit of a flying and then, uh, that'll be it for the year. Uh, see what happens, see what, uh, 2021 has in store. Excellent. Well, let's move then over to Captain Nick. Well, hi everybody. Uh, um, not much really for me. Uh, did that interview I've been talking about for a while with uh, George Lee, uh, three times World Open Gliding Champion, seemed to go very well, so uh, pleased with that. Uh, was uh, just about uh, finished on the plane tail, and of course we got the very sad news that uh, uh, Chuck Yeager had passed away. So put that to one side and restarted a new one. That's kept me pretty busy. Uh, quite honestly, the only break, in fact, was last night. Uh, when we, uh, Jeff and I, took part in uh, the PTUK Christmas special, so <laughs> looking forward to seeing uh, that was that was just you know uh, barely controlled chaos. So I'll be very interested to see how the edit <laughs> works on that one. True. Um, as for me, uh, not much uh, next week, uh, really, and honestly, just prepping for Christmas. And uh, uh, of course, I've got. A whole bunch of new gear, which I would show you, but I can't get one bit of it working, which is a new link for my camera, my phone. Uh, but uh, I can now stream uh, video from uh, my laptop through uh, a wonderful device that uh, Jeff sorted out for me um, and uh, put that on the screen. And, of course, uh, it's ideal for the online interviews that I uh, sometimes conduct because use Got up multiple camera views and uh, green screen and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I've been having great fun trying to get all that working. So been a busy week, and uh, the only thing that uh, I've done is upset my wife dreadfully because every time she would say, uh, I've, you've got 100 <laughs> Christmas cards to write, <laughs> but they're still sitting on the table. And I would be, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, okay, dear, I, I'm just trying to get this thing sorted. So, uh, yeah, that's right. And I, I am looking forward to, actually, Christmas. I hope that the uh, um, regulations here in the UK allow us to get together, but we're planning to get together with our family for the few days over Christmas, so that'll be marvelous. Very nice. Well, Jeff, I'll have to find out what your uh, week has been like over the uh, audio podcast or I'll tell another you so time, because <laughs> I'm going to 
bid my farewell for now. If the meeting doesn't go too long, perhaps I shall be able to rejoin at some point. But I hope sometimes so, yeah. these things go two hours. We'll still be which here, is really, hopefully. Uh, but yes, but it was nice talking to y'all. So, I'll catch you on the next nice one. Nice having you with us. See ya. Bye bye bye, Stephanie. Well, I've been just feverishly scrambling. At, you know when. <laughs> Rick, you said that you were in Houston or we were going to try to get together in Houston. I'm thinking, mm -hmm. well, that's right. I had a meetup with David Ogden and his son, and I completely forgot about it until you just mentioned it. I'm thinking, oh, crap, I did do some things uh, since the last episode. Um, and I think I found the audio for that. I don't think we took well, – and we did take a picture, and I don't – I don't see it on my camera for some reason. I don't know where the heck that went, but I think that this is the audio that I recorded. So fingers crossed, and hopefully this is actually the meetup audio. Not that. I pressed the wrong button. My bad. It's Miami Rick. <laughs> I like that song. Here we go. Testing, testing, one, two, three. I haven't edited it. Okay, so three pilots walk into a bar, and that's that's the setup. Now Craig is gonna. All right, so this is the uh, <laughs> shoot. Yeah, this is like the. Okay. Okay, hang on, hang on. By the way, we're on a technical break right here. If you're watching the video, uh, I'm still trying to figure out what the heck I did with the audio that I recorded, uh, but. What day was that, uh, Rick? That was it December second. It was the day after the that was show, so. on. I, I don't see it so, yes. on my phone. I'm a, what the heck? I'm um, right now. Maybe it never recorded. I'm sorry, David Ogden. Um, yeah, I met with uh, David and his son, and uh, they picked me up from the hotel on the uh, day after we recorded the last episode. Last episode, we were, or I was up at uh, in Chicago. December second. Yeah, December second was uh, when I was in Houston and uh, couldn't meet up with Rick. Um, weather was kind of skosh in the morning. It wasn't quite so bad when I came in a few hours later. It was still kind of low ceilings and winds. You know, it was windy, but it wasn't like windier kind of windy. And uh, went to the hotel and, uh, and contacted David. In fact, David was in the live audience um, when we were, we were recording our last show. And he said, hey, if you're ever in Houston, um, you know, give me a call. I'll pick you up and we'll, I'll take you out to dinner. And then both Rick and I said, hey, hello, we're going to be in Houston tomorrow. So we had it all set up. And, uh, oh, David is with us right uh now in our live audience hi david sorry i um i i screwed up i guess because he said no no he said you didn't do audio or a picture oh we didn't do either oh that's why i can't find it <laughs> how much did you drink that night <laughs> not a lot he was there he was my witness i only had two beers right david now the first beer was a nine percent alcohol beer that i think or was it the and it was one? two gallons but uh, uh, yeah it's like a big giant well you know everything's Texas. <laughs> exactly <laughs> including your Texas. headache the next morning no i'm just kidding i did not have too much to drink it's just because i'm getting old and i'm losing my mind apparently so um i'm sorry so anyway <laughs> david had a great time with you and your son and got all caught up with uh, his future plans he's a, a ninth grader i believe freshman and learned about uh, you know what he had planned for his life at this point anyway, 
and got all caught up with David as well. The last time that I'd seen David, other than the live chat room in Chicago, was actually physically in Chicago last year or maybe earlier this year. I don't remember, but it was a while ago. And we had a meetup there in Chicago. Great time. Um, but uh, David lives in the Houston area. And we had great, he took me over to um, St. Uh, heck, St. Ambrose. Is that right? Um, that's not right. St. Arnold's um, Brewery. It's a, bit, it's a good uh, craft brewing or brewery in uh, Texas. And we went to their brewery slash beer garden, I guess is what they call that. And uh, we had the uh, Christmas ale, which was uh, very, very tasty. And then I had the um, classic traditional um, IPA. They had a few different styles of IPA. And uh, the food was great. And, uh, of course, as we always say, the the, uh, conversation was even better. So thank you for picking me up uh, from the hotel, uh, David. And, uh, you know, at first we were just going to meet at the hotel, at the hotel bar. And I'm so glad that... Uh, he insisted that we go to uh, St. Arnold's um, Beer Garden because it was a, a good time. Oh, I hope I have that right. Uh, he hasn't said anything in opposition to any of that, so we're good. Now, uh, that was day two of the trip. Uh, and then the last day uh, went from Houston to Atlanta, and then we, our our penalty lap or victory lap, depending on your, your uh, point of view and your mood, was uh, up to Columbus, Ohio, and back. And I was, I have to say, very, very disappointed that I know I have listeners, or we have listeners up in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and um, especially one who supposedly works at the um, Columbus, Port Columbus Airport. But uh, she, yeah, who, who loves stair trucks, has a thing about stair trucks. And um, <laughs> she wasn't there. She didn't, she wasn't there no. to greet me. Uh, with a with a hot cup of coffee or anything, uh, I'm not sure. Or you even actually, a stair truck, or even no, a stair no water truck. cannon salute. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely no, nothing. What's going on? Well, it turns out that uh, I guess she is still working from home. She's not actually working nah, there. That's go. her excuse anyway. How can you That's drive right. a stair truck from home? Uh, well, she can do it. She has special uh, permits. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, so yeah, <laughs> she happens to be Jen Niffer uh, in our live audience. Who, me? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was just fooling around. I knew that she wasn't going to be there, and we were only there for a short time anyway. And uh, really, it's nothing nothing is open in the terminal anyway, so you probably couldn't have, we probably couldn't have found any coffee. Um, but um, yeah, then uh, made it home, got home um, early afternoon on uh, that Thursday, and then... I was right. St. Arnold's. Thank you, David. It was St. Arnold's. And uh, let's see. Then I got a um, a text for, oh, I think it was, yes. Um, I I noticed that uh, one of our um, APG community members, um, Captain Craig, was going to be flying through Atlanta on Thursday uh, when I was, about the time that I was coming back in from Columbus, Ohio. And so I just hung out there for a little bit after our last flight and uh, met up with Craig and walked with him from uh, his gate in the A concourse over to the D concourse and got a little bit caught up with him. And then the next day, uh, I got a text from Captain Craig that said, hey, I'm laying over in Atlanta. You want to get together? And I said, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. And so I said, let's uh, make sure that uh, Mike Carroll's uh, Flying and Life host um, uh, 
joins us as well if he's available. And he was. And so uh, Mike picked up Craig from his hotel and we met at a place in um, uh, Hapeville, um, which is basically right there at the airport, north side of the airport. And uh, we uh, had a little meetup there at the uh, Corner Tavern, which I'd never known existed. And it was really good, really good beer, good food. And now I did take or use my phone and recorded some audio of our little encounter. Now, we, we heard the very beginning of that, so I'm not going to play it from the beginning. I'm hoping that if I just hit this shortcut key that it will resume playing. So let's see what happens. Tell us the punchline. Uh, I lost it. I'm sorry. I'm not good with it either. I wasn't very good at setting this whole thing up. Anyway, three pilots in a bar in um, Hapeville, the hometown of Jeff Foxworthy, the comedian. And uh, having a great time, uh, the three of us here, uh, BFFs, and there's a lot of people listening to the show have no idea what I'm talking about, but the BFFs know what we're talking about. Anyway, uh, we are here in, uh, what, what's, what's the name of this place? Cor- Corner Tavern? Yes. Thank you. Okay, they're pointing. They're, thank you. Thank you. Corner Tavern, Atlanta. And uh, Craig, Captain Craig came in for a uh, layover and said, hey, if you want to get together, let's, uh, let's get together and uh, do something. I'm down here at the airport, the ATL. And so it's a Saturday night, and um, apparently Mike and I don't really have much of a life because we were available. <laughs> 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 so here we are, and we're having a great time. So now Craig is going to say something really, I don't know, it's going to be the kind of thing where you're going to sit back and think, wow, that was, that was something that he just said. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Jeff's setting the bar really uh, high for me, and I failed on that one, so I apologize, everybody. But I uh, hope you're all doing well, uh, having a good time with Jeff and uh, Mike here. Uh, it's been a fun day so far, long day. Uh, started with the first leg line check, Columbia at Atlanta, and it did two Hilton Head turns. So it's been a long day, but it's been beautiful weather. So that always makes life easy and a good FO that kept me in line during the line check. So that's always helpful. And then uh, Mike picked me up from the uh, hotel. And as soon as he did that, four of uh, Hapeville's finest PDs come ripping and tearing through the parking lots. I told Mike to floor it to get us out of there because I didn't want to be I didn't want to be a part of anything that was happening. So uh, now we're having a good time as you can tell and I uh, hope you're all doing well and not a whole lot of news uh, on the guard front. For those of you that don't know, I'm joining the Air National Guard as a C-17 pilot for the uh, uh, 167th out of Martinsburg, West Virginia. So uh, once I get updates on that, I'll keep you all posted, but uh, nothing on that front so far. That's awesome news. Uh, I can't wait to hear about your journey into the Air Force training and becoming an officer and all that kind of stuff. That's, uh, that's awesome. All right, and then over here, uh, the host of the Flying in Life podcast, Dispatcher Extraordinaire. The, the Dispatcher of all dispatchers over here mike carrolls hey everybody in the community uh as uh as jeff and craig said we got this text last night and i said yes i'm down with it 
I need something other to do than to just sit at home because, uh, as Jeff said, I, I don't really have a life either. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of nice to, you know, just meet up with uh, like-minded people uh, who uh, enjoy aviation. Uh, it just happened that my ETA at Craig's Hotel was 737, and it, it worked out quite perfectly. Uh, apparently, the Hateville Police also knew we were going to show up at 737. <laughs> um, but no, it's a great time sitting here at the Corner Tavern, which is a, a good lunch spot that I used to uh, usually go to when I actually went to work to go to work, opposed to just sitting in my office at home. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to be out here and, uh, <laughs> you know, do something some, somewhat normal. Uh, in in 2020 because this year this year hasn't been very normal. No, it has not. And Naomi actually called me up and said, "Jeff, is there anything that you can do to get Mike out of the house?" And I said, "I'll try to think of something." And then it was just happenstance that Craig said, "Hey, I'm in town." I went, "Yes." No, I'm just kidding, Naomi. Oh, you're not listening. Never mind. <laughs> Anywho, so we're having a great time, and uh, that's about it. Don't want to take up any more time, precious time, in this world-class aviation podcast. <laughs> Back to you, Jeff. All right here, all three of us together. One, two, three. Back, Back to you, Jeff. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll take it from here. <laughs> that was nice the first time, time that I listened to that recording, and I. Nice. Sort of Very remember nice. what we were talking about there. Nice. Anyway, um, yeah, I had a good time on Saturday night in the city, <laughs> the small little city right next to the Atlanta airport. And uh, it was always always good to see um, Mike and Craig and uh, look forward to meeting up with them again in the future. So, you know, I really was wondering what I was going to talk about during the segment. And then now it turns out that I there were a lot of things I could talk about <laughs> that I didn't remember. Yeah. Well, it's Liz says, you do have a life, Jeff. And I said, yeah, well, I guess. <laughs> anyway, so I was supposed to go out on a trip um, day before yesterday. And on, I think it was um, Friday or Saturday, one of those days, um, I was, I woke up and started walking on my left foot and it like didn't feel good at all it was very painful i was like limping around thinking what the heck did i do to my foot felt like somebody had taken a hammer and hit in the hit the ball of my left foot so i kind of hobbled around a little bit and uh hobbled around at uh church on uh, both saturday and sunday i guess i must have hobbled over um to the corner tavern as well because i think that i started my hobbling on friday actually and um so i it's it's much better now thank you uh if you're wondering uh, I don't know if it's, it's um, like uh, the bones in your foot, I think, sometimes get out of alignment or whatever. So I old think it's old age thing. Old age. Uh, thank you, Liz. Um, and uh, but I was at the point that the night before the trip was uh, to start. So Monday night, I was still hobbling around pretty badly. And I'm thinking this is not a good look for an airline captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier walking through the concourse of these big international airports ho hobbling around. And I'm thinking that that's not a good look. And, uh, you know, honestly, I wasn't even sure that 
I had full capability of like depressing the uh, the, the uh, toe brakes on the uh, top of the rudder pedals for operating our, my flight. So um, out of an abundance of caution, I decided to go ahead and call in sick for this trip. But um, it was just because of my foot. You know, it wasn't any kind of a respiratory thing or flu or anything else, COVID. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I put myself in foot quarantine and uh, called in sick for the trip. But as I said, yesterday it started feeling much better. And today it's not 100%, but I'd say I'm probably about 80% on my foot. So nice. whatever it was, it, it seems to have, have gone and worked itself out, I guess. Excellent. So. It's, a, it's a great call. I would have done the same. Yeah, I mean, it was it was hard for me to do that because I, you know you I think well especially those co-hosts that I'm with here know me pretty well and you know I don't you know call in sick just because I feel like having more time off um, and and I really take my job seriously and I, I don't call in sick unless it's really something that I feel is best to keep from infecting somebody else or whatever. Uh, but in, in this case, um, you know, I, I kind of just uh, had to sit myself down and have a have a talk with myself and and say, you know what, I know you want to help out, but uh, it's best I think for the for the company's um, uh, what uh, reputation or whatever. You don't want to cause any scandal. The so optics wouldn't. The be optics good. would not be good. Thank you, Liz. Uh, I need to have Liz. I was just telling Liz that I wish that she were with me all the time, or at least um, had some kind of a audio channel in my ear at all times, because there are many times now <laughs> that I I'm a, at a loss for the word that I want to use, like that recording. And when we were listening to that recording, she actually said the word that I was looking for. <laughs> so why weren't you there? Very nice, telling me what I was supposed to say at that point. Anyway, so called in sick, and um, I'm I'm well now. And uh, have another trip next week. Uh, I think it also leaves on a Tuesday. So good to go. So that is what I have been up to these Nick's last few days. Board. Okay. Yeah. Nick, you still with us, man? Uh, yeah, just to quit yawn. Okay. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, I've seen that a lot. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with Nick and my... Uh, in my life, and uh, and he he does that a lot when I'm talking to him. He yawns, <laughs> starts looking at looking the other way, paying attention to other things. And oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Were you still talking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes he even nods off. Yeah, that's true. Well, okay, it's, it's eleven o'clock at night. Yeah, that's okay. That's you have an excuse. So you, right. you carry on. <laughs> okay. Well, I tell you what. I think we should all carry on with. The next seg. Oh no, no! I need to do the coffee fund first. Okay, mm-hmm. so I do have a couple of. Uh, I, first of all, I'd like to apologize to the folks that were coffee fund contributors on the last episode. I didn't do the graphics for the for the show, nor did I do the graphics for the chapter markers on the last episode. And so I do apologize, mea culpa. Mea culpa, I guess should, I should say. Um, but I have them this time, so Liz is ready to go with that, and I'm going to hit this ready. button here and play our Coffee Fund jingle. Johnny, how much more coffee? So thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea. And the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah, that's Jeff Smith singing the APG Java Jive, the Coffee Fund, your way to contribute to our show financially. 
And since the last episode, we have some Coffee Fund Classic folks who contributed. And uh, we're going to look at that slide right now. There we go. Because I'm actually waiting for the slide so I can remember who those people were. Uh, Randy Ackerman, Mazuz Karim, was on the live uh, chat room with him during the live recording of PTUK on Friday. Uh, Michael Smith and George Leslie. So thank you, Randy, Mazutz, uh, Michael, and George for your classic contributions. We do appreciate that. And we also have something called Patreon. You can become a patron of the show via Patreon. And since the last show, we have a new executive producer, Joseph Jake Jacobs. Welcome, Jacob. I mean, sorry, Jake, uh, to the uh, patronage of the Airline Pilot Guy show. So if you want to join these great folks, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee and sign up. You'll be glad you did. And, you know, we will too. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with our first piece of feedback in the feedback segment which is from sam and he said i hope that you're all well i came across a video of the an124 at rick help me out again nova Novosibirsk. yes that place being recovered that might be of interest perhaps inspired by the 747 in doncaster that was recovered by a local roadside recovery company using tow trucks and chains This video shows the AN-124 being recovered using two tanks, military tanks, and some wire. And we have video of it, so go ahead and play that. There we go. Got the back end of the AN-124, two tanks in series. Yeah, I guess that's enough of that. You can stop playing that if you'd like, Liz. There we go. And you get the idea. The, uh, I have to say that's the most Russian thing I've seen in a long time. Well, they're going to do something with all those thousands of thousands of armored personnel carriers they have. <laughs> they got a lot of them lying around doing nothing. Yep. <laughs> Who let the dogs out? Boom. Roof. Boom. Roof. 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 <laughs> yeah. Oops. Who hit his beer against his boom I, yeah, arm? Yeah. I might point out, actually, that uh, when this thing went off the end of the runway, the gear collapsed. It was full of stuff um so before they would have attempted this they uh would have emptied all the cargo that had defueled the aircraft they'd have uh, probably put bags under it inflatable bags that's the common way of lifting big aircraft up uh and got the thing high enough to be able to uh, get the gear sorted out so it would have been quite light at this point and back on its wheels they may not have been perfect but they would have been good enough to drag it away 
uh, and before they'd have connected uh, these tanks to it. So it's not like they were dragging it off just after it ran off the runway. They would have um, prepped the aircraft. It would have taken probably quite some time. So are you trying to say that the Russian tanks are not very powerful? Well, I, I, I don't think they necessarily... They probably did need tanks, but just think about it. You, you can move one of these airplanes with a normal tow truck you know, when you push mm -hmm. it back. Um, it was on the, obviously in the mud, uh, mm. and unprepared ground, so that it'd need something a bit tougher. But mm -hmm. uh, two tanks may not be necessary, but uh, you could have done it with uh, uh, the strongest man in the world and a big long rope, probably. I don't know. <laughs> In that case, I think you may have had to set up porta potties. <laughs> yeah, yes. would have been there a while. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll wear a nappy. Yes. There you go. Anyway, um, that's from Chief Officer Sam, your aircraft undertow correspondent. Ah, so this is his area of expertise. So that's why he wanted he's to put it in he, he sails. Oh, he sails. Oh, under toe. Oh, really? How do you know that, Liz? He's, he's, no, no, he sent in stuff before. Oh, Nick knows okay. who we're talking about here. Okay, great. So he's a submariner? Is that what you were saying? I don't think a submariner. He's a oh, mariner. A mariner. Okay, he's, excellent. He's like a merchant. A, a marinator or a mariner? Okay. <laughs> Making me hungry here. Is he a chef? <laughs> he might be. Here. I don't know. Chief Officer Sam, we apologize. <laughs> I'm sure whatever it is you do, you do it well. And thank you for I, the feedback. I'm guessing he's a fireman of some kind. No. No, Liz a, says yeah. with certainty that he uh, he's a sailor. He's at sea. Oh, okay. He's at sea. All right. In the Navy. In the, I don't know if he's in the, well, maybe. No. No. I don't think so. Merchant he thinks it's Marine? not Merchant, Merchant Marine, Marine, maybe. Yeah. Oh boy, the rabbit holes we we fall in every every show is yep. just amazing. We dig for us, yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Steph, when we need oh, Lane Street, very clever, such a comedian. Thanks for the toe. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, moving on with uh, item two uh, from Greg Peterson. And uh, let's see, ran across this. Our on biggest fan. FlightAware. <laughs> Our biggest ass fan. <laughs> Big, <laughs> eh, whatever. Uh, he ran across this on FlightAware the other day. It's a good looking 727, but I definitely would not want to be a passenger on this one. <laughs> no, definitely not. And why wouldn't we want to be a passenger or why wouldn't he want to be a passenger on this one, uh, Rick? Because it says Policia Federal, which is the federal police of Mexico, and uh, yeah, that'd be a bad day. You don't want to, uh, you don't want to be in the back of that airplane. It's a good-looking jet, though. Even in those, it is a good colors. Jet. Well, or lack of color, <laughs> yeah. black and white. So this is Conair, is it? Yeah, I guess well, the equivalent, yeah. But, equivalent, uh, yeah. but look at that thing. It's got the winglets. And I, I remember right after um, I got checked out on the 74 years ago, I rode on a 727 just like this one. Not this one, but just like this one. <laughs> yeah, tell us more about that. It, <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I took, uh, there's an airline that's based out of Miami called the Maryjet. There's a, um, a a cargo outfit that does uh, flights. And uh, they, they have uh, 727s and they fly 767, 200s and 300s. And I took one of their 727s down to St. Martin. And, um, well, and nice. yeah, the, uh, that, that airport with the, with the famous, uh, where Mahu Beach is, mm -hmm. the famous uh, runway. You leave tire tracks on the sand? 
Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that where we're going to do a, uh, we're going to do have a, an APG meetup there some, some day in the future. Can you imagine? Oh man, that's uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. So I took a, uh, took that, uh, that 727 down there and it's the uh, first time I flew in a 727 in many, many, many years. I never thought I'd uh, get to fly in one again because oh. uh, these are, uh, becoming more and more uh of a uh, rare site um so uh, i don't think there are any um passenger carrying 727s uh, well definitely at least not in the states uh, i don't know if they have them uh, perhaps in uh the dark continent i don't know but uh, uh cargo uh, you know they're they're, they're still flying uh, in fact uh up in the ramp in cincinnati we parked uh next to a lot of these guys still uh you know 40 plus years old and they're still going strong um you just build them right that's uh they just go forever yep and this thing was built like a tank oh yeah which kind of ties Man, into it, the last last piece of yeah i tell you it could have towed that antonov out easy couldn't it? <laughs> no i tell you, i mean I, i've always said this that there's there's uh there's three airplanes i've wished i've flown this is one of them the 727 another one's mm-hmm. the dc3 the other one's the dc10 on uh, no, just this thing is just wow mm-hmm all right. Well, thanks, Greg, for sending in that nice pick. Um, Becky uh, sent us this. I just saw a video of the Dreamlifter taking off, and it had accidentally landed in Kansas and had taken off from a shorter runway than normal. I'm curious, is the math clear enough that the pilot knew they could do a successful takeoff, or was it partially unknown when they started the roll? On the video I watched, people seem relieved. Was there a chance it wouldn't work? Again, this is from <laughs> Becky Rausch. No, they were just happy to see it. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> I did see the video that she was talking about. Uh, so, yeah, we talked about this uh, not long after it had happened. Uh, the original incident was back in 2013. Uh, it was an Atlas Air Boeing 747-400 Dreamlifter. And it was flying from Kennedy in New York to... Wichita McConnell Air Base. Well, that's where they were trying to go um, with two crew. And they were on a GPS RNAV approach to McConnell Airport's runway 19 left, but unintentionally landed on runway 18 at Wichita's Jabara, Colonel James Jabara Airport. Um, now, it, the runway wasn't that short, 6,100 feet. I don't think they had any cargo on board i think they were going to mcconnell to pick up some 787 pieces and so they were probably i mean i don't know you know probably empty or close to it and uh but the width of the runway was only 100 feet that probably would get my attention in a dream lifter only 100 foot wide runway but uh i don't know i've never flown one but uh anyway managed to stop the aircraft on the runway and then the crew subsequently nobody on the crew has ever flown one yeah, the crew subsequently reported to be on the ground and intending to vacate via taxiway Delta, to which the tower uh, responded, puzzled, standby, then reporting they were about eight nautical miles from the aerodrome. Actually, I think the transcript has it a little bit differently. I think the I tower controller. Say, That's a long taxiway. <laughs> I think the tower <laughs> controller told them, you know, exit taxiway Delta, right on Delta, and then the crew just kind of paused for a couple of seconds and said that they were unable to do that because they um we landed at the other airport um let's see no here here's his response uh we might uh we'll get back to you here momentarily we're not on your approach and then he said uh yeah we landed at the other airport 
during the subsequent discussion, the flight crew initially thought that they had landed at uh, Beach Field, uh, which was between Jabara and McConnell. Um, and I think that even had a smaller or a shorter runway than the one they landed on. But they worked with the uh, local controller to finally determine that they had landed at Colonel Jabara Airport. And uh, so basically the, what Becky is asking us about is, um, and, and I, for some reason, I thought that um, they had to push the airplane all the way back to the other end of the runway, but they didn't. But they did have to get a tug. And I think maybe Rick told me this or somebody did, that uh, they had to drive um, a tug big enough and beefy enough to maneuver the 747 they had to actually turn it around 180 degrees they had to drive it from mcconnell air force base what eight nine miles away um and that probably took forever you know because those tugs yeah. don't drive that fast and up, up to the colonel jabara airport get hooked up and and somehow they must have had many many little turns here and there to move that airplane uh in the in the span of 100 feet uh, to get it, you know, completely turned the other direction. But uh, they managed to do that. And then the next day, they took off um, heading the opposite direction, runway uh, 36 at Jabara, and then just made the quick 19-minute flight or whatever it was over to um, McConnell. And it was a happy ending from from that point forward. Except for maybe the pilots, probably, it probably wasn't a happy ending for them. I have a feeling that they may have gotten in a wee bit of trouble with that one. Um, yeah, just perhaps, yeah, yeah. Again, that was back in 2013 or 2012, I think. I yeah, I, I think they're a bit lucky actually that the runway they landed on uh, had sufficient strength to support them. Because well, I mean, that actually, you, you'd be yeah, you'd be, it's it's interesting, but you'd be surprised, Nick. The uh, the uh, PCN classification of the 747 is it's relatively you know low because of the the the, the number of wheels you have out there, and then the way that well, you know this better than anybody. The way that the weight is distributed, but um, but uh, to uh, Becky's question, uh, was anything left to chance? No, 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 no. In, in aviation, nothing is left to chance, uh, and um, um, I'm I'm sure that. Uh, well, it's not that I'm sure. I know for a fact that uh, uh, there were um, a team of people uh, involved in making sure that the numbers add up. And uh, obviously, the airplane was um, flown out with just the amount of fuel required to get uh, from point A to point B there. And uh, the thrust required based on the conditions for the day and the flap required. Obviously, it, was, it must have been a flap 20 takeoff, which you can do on the 747. Um, so it must have been a flap 20 takeoff, you know, max thrust type takeoff and with, uh, with just enough fuel to get you to where you need to go and, uh, get the airplane going. So, uh, uh, I can guarantee you that nothing was left to chance here. Everything was, you know, very meticulously, uh, studied, uh, well, yeah. to, uh, whenever we got in this situation, uh, when we were in a strange airport that we didn't necessarily have figures for. We would just go through a database of uh, all the airports that would be equivalent, mm -hmm. and we'd use a rule of equivalency that would allow us to use the figures for uh, an, an identical uh, airport, uh, the same height, same temperatures, same everything, mm -hmm. uh, and substitute them. Uh, so, yeah, uh, no, no one would ever get airborne in an airplane as expensive as a Dreamlifter without number crunching properly. So right. I have absolutely no doubt that the boys have done their job properly. Yeah, and, and as I mentioned, I think it was the last episode or the episode before that, uh, we use um, uh, 
a system uh, company called uh, Era Data, which uh, does all the number crunching for us. So um, you know, you'll you just basically send out. So you have you have a a a, a template, a page template on your ACARS. And you and you fill in your departure runway. You know what the wind is, um, the temperature, uh, the Q and H, or the um, barometric um, uh, pressure, uh, weight, uh, uh, projected flap setting, what kind of thrust you're going to you know uh, be using, that kind of stuff. And then the system will um, send back uh, the results for that, and it'll tell you um, what uh, type of uh, distance you're going to need for liftoff, uh, what your speeds are for uh, for your your V1 your go no go speed your VR rotation speed and V2 your engine out safety uh, speed and if and and, and it, not not only that but another very very important piece of information is your stop margin should you abort or reject the takeoff you need to know what your what what type of runway how how much runway you have left uh, after you uh, uh, begin the uh, reject uh, procedure, there because that's not that's, that's I mean you want to know that you have enough runway to stop, and so uh, that's something that's another figure that the uh, that the system spits back at you. So uh, again, just to make just go down, you know, just making the point here that uh, nothing was left to chance, absolutely nothing. No, um, on the screen right now, I have a um, uh, Google uh, Earth view of the satellite view of McConnell Airport, the airport of intended landing, uh, Jabara up at the top. That's the one they actually landed on. And then the one that they thought they had accidentally landed on, which was Beach Airport, which is kind of between the two, maybe just slightly offset to the east. Uh, but all of these run, it seems like almost all the airports in Wichita uh, are aligned pretty much north-south. Uh, yeah, for the yeah, exactly. Lanes. And that was and that was the that was I, I seem to remember that was the issue here. Um, the, uh, the 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 flight crew um, obviously misidentified the airport and uh, you know transitioned from a uh, from a GPS approach to just a visual approach. Well, it was and as far as the go ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I was going to say it was a classic Swiss cheese kind of setup because oh, yeah. the the captain had gone in and flown this approach into McConnell Airport in the past and this particular approach he ended up always kind of being a little bit high so he's already in his mind expecting that they're going to be coming in and they're going to be high on the approach for landing at the mcconnell airport number one number two um the one nine right this is a parallel so i always thought well how in the world can you mistake jabara with only one runway and mcconnell with parallel runways but turns out that one nine right was notumed out of service so they didn't have the runway lighting on right so they would have been expecting to see just a single runway with lights so that's right. another like little hole in the swiss cheese uh the first officer's primary flight display was was operating intermittently uh during the last stages of their flight so they weren't sure exactly if they could trust the PFD or he couldn't trust the, the primary flight display. Uh, so that was another little thing to throw in. And then when they spotted Jabara's runway one eight, they thought that's gotta be it. We went for it. We're high. That's what I'm expecting. And they just dove down and <laughs> it actually, you know, I think they were only, um, uh, 4.6 miles away at 3,900 feet. So that was a pretty darn steep, descent from that point yeah. to land on that runway but um again you know once you have it in your head that it's gonna you're gonna be high 
You're only expecting to see one runway. It's lined up exactly the way I'm expecting it to be lined up. You know, you can kind of see uh, kind of they went down the primrose path on this. Oh, and yeah. as far as and as far as the 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 runway width, um, I mean, I haven't haven't flown the 747 myself, and haven't flown the Dreamlifter myself. Um, I the difference between so usually runways um uh, the, the width run a normal runway width at, at major uh, airports international airports and the top airports that uh that uh, jeff nick and i fly into or flown have flown into uh, in our careers yeah range from between 150 to 200 feet um in the 747 um you're sitting so high up off the runway uh, that Really, that difference between the 150 and 200 foot uh, runway width, uh, not that much. I mean, at least I, I, I can't, I can't really, I can't really tell that. I guess the only, the only way you can tell is either by counting the number of uh, of straps in the piano keys or the threshold, um, yeah, or uh, <laughs> or looking at the uh, at the 109 page. You know, but yep. uh, at least with the 747, you sit so high up off the ground that. Uh, it's really negligible, and then add to that the fact that it was at night, uh, and uh, makes it a little bit harder there. But uh, mm. but again, just as Jeff says, uh, you know the, the the holes in the Swiss cheese model kind of line up, and uh, and you end up in a situation like this. The good thing here is that uh, you know uh, it really you know nothing nothing happened, just except uh, perhaps a few bruised egos, and uh, the mm-hmm. airplane uh, flew away. And just to, uh, just just as you said, Jeff, yes, in fact, uh, uh, the airplane uh, landed. Uh, empty because obviously there's a big uh, Boeing plant there in Kansas and uh, you know, flown there many many times and uh, you go there and you actually pick up pieces for the seven eight and you fly them uh, on down to uh, Painfield up in uh, Washington State so uh, that's kind of how it goes. All right, you know the only uh, time that for me the uh, and usually for me it's 150 or 200 feet because some of the airports we fly in where it used to be like old uh, Air Force bomber kind of bases that are now joint use or completely civilian. And so when they have a 200 foot wide runway for me, I have to kind of consciously understand that. So as I'm getting in that latter stages, let's say, you know, below 100 feet, 50 feet, and you're starting to make all your mental calculations and visual cues for the proper place to flare the airplane and shifting your gaze toward the end, end of the runway. I always have to remember, okay, 200 feet, wait like another potato or two before you do what you normally do because otherwise you'll end up flaring too high and then you run out of airspeed and the thing just drops down and it's not a pretty right. landing right and uh and in my experience on the on the you know the big big 747s it's uh obviously you you, you look at the window and you, you take care you take in the, the the visual cues but at least on the 747 is such a huge airplane you're sitting so high up off the ground that really, you you uh, you you land that airplane by 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 ear more than by sight, and that uh, you uh, you just kind of you just kind of know based on uh, on the fa- you know you, you get to about fifty feet on the radio altimeter, you hear the fifty call out, and you bring you begin bringing the nose up, and then the throttle the thrust goes to idle at about thirty to twenty feet, and you just hold it, and uh, it just settles down nicely. So uh, that's kind of how it's kind of how. I do it at least, and yeah. seemed seemed. And seemed I hear smart. it's pretty much impossible to make a bad landing in that airplane. Yeah, I mean, you 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 enter ground effect. I mean, you talk a dash head. You're talking about 225 foot uh, wingspan, so you enter ground effect at about mm-hmm. half of that. So uh, you know, the last hundred or so feet, you're basically in ground effect, and so that cushion of air really, really does help it's a just lot. Just like so. landing on a nice big fluffy pillow. Exactly. Right. <laughs> 
every landing that Captain Nick was at the controls was like landing on a big <laughs> fluffy uh, pillow, right? Barely any smoke from those tires. I don't know how Nick does it. <laughs> I don't either. I've forgotten, actually. <laughs> it was so long ago. Well, they were like riding awesome. my bike out here. Once you, know, once you do it once, you, do, you, you, know, you never forget. <laughs> uh, when you said you landed by air, I thought you meant, here comes the runway. <laughs> <laughs> That's why his ear is a little scuffed up right now. All that landing on his ear. Mind you, uh, you mentioned that they were a bit high on that approach for that runway. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've done it myself. When you're a little bit high and you're working hard to get in, you're, your sort of vision narrows and you, you, you're task saturated to a certain extent. I'm not suggesting it was. But... If they'd been flying a normal approach, they may well have had all the time in the world to sit back and go, you know, this runway doesn't look quite right. Have you noticed mm. the range? We're, we're not. But because they were probably working real hard trying to get rid of that height and get in, that a lot of that normal consideration would have gone out the window, I suspect. I think on the uh, tapes themselves, uh, the cockpit voice recorder, at some point, uh, cl- getting close to the runway, the captain just said, hold my beer. I got, I got this, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And and it's actually interesting because because of this incident um, uh, at uh, uh, our sister airline uh, Acme Giant, uh, we started using a uh, a final cross check of um, the final approach fix, either in a non precision approach or final approach fix in an ILS, which is glide slope intercepted published altitude. There's usually a fix there, and so once you cross that fix. Uh, you have to verbalize um, the fact that you're crossing that fix and cross-check that with your altitude uh, published at that fix to make sure that you are, in fact, um, over the fix and on that approach flying to that specific runway at that specific airport. So another cross-check to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Probably a good idea for all of us to do that at every airport mm-hmm. we land in or on. That's right. All right. Well, you know what, that means it's now time for the best part of the show which is the old pilot's plain tales and this week's is a great one um all about that legend chuck yeager and the title of this week's tale legend oh bring it on can't wait for this one the old pilot's plain tales legend Many of my aviation heroes are complicated people of nuance and contradiction, but not this man. As I reflect on his life, so recently ended, I remind myself of his uncompromising, direct manner, but also of his enormous courage and skill that brought him to the world's attention. Charles Edward Yeager was a man of his time, a time when his nation came to the rescue of the world, and with its industrial might, its technological supremacy, its unstoppable drive and determination, would go on to achieve feats of wonder that over 50 years later, we're still finding it hard to equal. Chuck Yeager was born in 1923, and he was a long way from being a man of privilege. Like him, his father was stubborn and opinionated, something Chuck put down to his Dutch and German blood. Albert Jaeger passed on much more than just his uncompromising manner, but the resolve embodied in his name, Jaeger, 
originally spelt with a J, meaning hunter. The family first lived in Myra, on the Upper Mud River in West Virginia, where Chuck's father worked for the railroad, shoveling coal, before they moved to Hamlin, when he became a gas driller. It was tough growing up during the Great Depression, but with a safe income, the family prospered in comparison to many. Their dad often took the Jaeger boys on hunting trips, where Chuck's exceptional eyesight, later measured by the Air Force at 2010, and his steady hand made him a good shot. Albert also taught Chuck to be a mechanic, and at only eight, he was up in the gas fields helping to rig pumping engines. At school, he excelled in anything that involved dexterity or mathematical aptitude, but his English and history tutors despaired. A great sportsman, he would also have been a damned good trombone player, if only I practiced, he said. But between girls, chores, homework, hunting and fishing, his time was stretched thin. In 1941, Chuck enlisted as a private in the U.S. Army Air Force and became a mechanic at George Air Force Base in California. His age and lack of education made it impossible for him to become a pilot, but less than three months later, the United States entered the war. Recruiting standards were lowered and his natural skills were soon recognized. Chuck Yeager was on his way to a cockpit. He'd been up for a ride with a maintenance officer, and he threw up all over the back seat, staggering out as miserable as he'd ever been, but it didn't put him off. He was also lucky that his records had been delayed, as his court-martial for shooting a grazing horse dead with a machine gun while supposedly on guard duty might have put pay to his ambitions. His initial training complete, and at the top of his class, he soon found himself in the Bell P-39 Aero Cobra, whipping through the desert canyons at 300 miles an hour, so low that the boys were leaving prop marks on the dirt roads. Chuck didn't much like the Aero Cobra. It was underpowered, and he joined in singing a song all about it. Don't give me a P-39 with an engine that's mounted behind. It will tumble and roll and dig a big hole. Don't give me a P-39. There was a gruesome selection process going on as many of his colleagues killed themselves, augering in or buying the farm, as he described it. And the accident rate was so bad that his group commander lost his job. Jaeger didn't have much time for those who didn't make the grade, saying that he got angry at them for dying so young and senselessly and destroying expensive government property in the process. Having said that, Chuck took his fair share of risks. Befriending a local farmer, he tried to help him take down an old tree by topping it with the wing of his P-39. When he landed back, the maintenance officer wanted to know why his wingtip was smashed and full of bits of wood. I hit a bird, Jaeger lied. Well, that bird must have been in one hell of a nest, he replied, and promptly grounded him for a week. 
Posted to be a maintenance officer himself, Chuck found himself flying the P-47 Thunderbolt, which he promptly used to beat up the main street of his hometown, Hamlin, at 500 miles an hour. He was accused of wrecking the place, sending one old lady to hospital, blowing down crops and terrifying horses, cows and pigs in a miscarrying. Visiting the place afterwards, he would meet the love of his life, Glenis Dickhouse, the sharpest-looking dancer in the Elk Club Hall. His flying exploits were never-ending when the back end of his P-47 blew up, pushing fire into the cockpit. As the aircraft disintegrated around him, he jumped for it, but was knocked out when his parachute opened. A sheep herder found him and tossed him onto the back of his burrow. Jaeger would wake up moaning and groaning in hospital with his back fractured. His back was still troubling him when he was finally sent to England to fly P-51 Mustangs out of RAF Lyston. He had named his aircraft Glamorous Glen and he was sending his paycheck back to his girlfriend, but now he had more important things to cope with, his survival. It was 1944, and Chuck was a 21-year-old fighter pilot on his eighth mission. He already had one kill to his name, but now he was on the receiving end of the 20mm shells from a Focke-Wulf 190. As his world exploded around him, he ducked down, but he was on fire. There was a gaping hole in his wing, and he was spinning down towards the overcast clouds. Moments later, he was in his parachute, dangling from a tree in southern France, luckily only a few inches from the ground, but dripping blood from his head and leg. He was now officially missing in action. Hiding in heavy undergrowth, listening to the shouts of the German soldiers searching for him, he treated his shrapnel wounds and studied his escape map. He stayed put overnight, and despite an intensive search, next morning he was still undiscovered. When a woodcutter passed nearby, he took a chance and spoke to him. In the hands of the underground, Jaeger started an adventure that would last over two months until he faced the final barrier, the Pyrenees Mountains. With him now was a B-24 navigator called Pat, and they struggled upwards together in the bitter cold until they were spotted by a German patrol who opened fire. Pat is shot in the leg, but they escape through the night, with Jaeger having to cut the remains of Pat's leg free before bandaging him up. Jaeger dragged the unconscious man over the mountains to safety, a remarkable feat that won him the bronze star for valour. Back with his squadron, Chuck fought a posting to the States so that he could remain on active duty and goes on to become the first pilot in his group to become an ace in one day, when on the 12th of October 1944 he downed five aircraft in a single mission. Two of his kills came in an almost comical fashion, when he settled in behind an ME-109, but before he could open fire, the pilot broke left and ran straight into his wingman. 
Jaeger finished the war on 11.5 kills, one of which was an ME-262 jet bomber, one of the very first to be downed. After the war, Chuck married his glamorous Glennis, and with his flying and maintenance experience, the Air Force gave him a job of testing repaired aircraft at Wright Field. He was under the command of the Flight Test Division and was also getting time on the new jet fighter, the Shooting Star. This was followed by visits to Murak Army Airfield, which would eventually become Edwards Air Force Base, where Chuck's obvious talent was noticed. January 1946 saw Chuck with his friend Bob Hoover sitting together on the six-month test pilot's course at Wright Field. Passing the course put Chuck Yeager on the path to fame, as the Bell Aircraft Company was looking for someone to fly their Bell X-1 experimental rocket-powered aircraft. At the time, there were many who thought that breaking the sound barrier was an impossibility. Wartime aircraft had come close, but the violence that they incurred as compressibility effects shook their machines around made it seem impossible. In England, the famous test pilot, Geoffrey de Havilland, had already died in the attempt when his tailless swallow experimental aircraft broke up at Mach.94. The Bell test pilot, Slick Goodlin, had taken the X-1 to Mach.8, but wanted $150,000 to attempt the flight beyond Mach-1. Bell's chief test pilot, Tex Johnson, flew the X-1 to Mach.75 to confirm the dangers and agreed that Goodlin should be paid, but the Air Corps had lost patience with the delays and were taking control. Within a few months of graduating from test pilot school, the head of the test flight division nominated Jaeger, the most junior test pilot on the base, to be the principal pilot of the X-1. Jack immediately picked his friend Bob Hoover to act as his backup pilot, and Jack Ridley as flight engineer. Looking over the ship, Jaeger saw a bright orange bullet with razor-thin wings. The only way in or out was through a small side door that threatened to cut anyone foolish enough to try to jump in half. Surrounding the hangar were labs with vats full of alcohol and others oozing smoking fog from liquid oxygen at minus 297 degrees Fahrenheit. To illustrate the point, someone dipped a frog into a tank and then dropped it on the floor where it shattered into pieces. Jaeger was considering taking this rocket ship through a very narrow region of flight never encountered before, through a supersonic shockwave. Now, a shockwave is a very narrow region, perhaps one thousandth of an inch, 0.025 of a millimetre thick, in which the air is in a high state of energy. On transitioning a shockwave, flow is violently compressed, its velocity is decreased and temperature increased. When transonic and supersonic, conventional aerodynamics change and the alterations can be dangerous. 
the balance of an aircraft can alter dramatically as the centre of pressure moves aft. Controls can become ineffective and the stress on an airframe destructive. Jaeger's boss told him that nobody knew for sure what would happen at Mach 1 until someone got there. Some very good aviation people thought that the loads on the aircraft would go to infinity. You know what that means, he asked. He knew. Chuck practiced a few glide drops from the belly of the B-29 mothership from 25,000 feet. He needed to dead-stick the aircraft onto the lake bed, even on a powered flight. The fragile undercarriage couldn't cope with the weight of fuel, so any left was jettisoned before landing. It also made things considerably safer. Then things began in earnest as they loaded fuel, and on their first attempt, Chuck took the X-1 to 45,000 feet, and then did a few aileron rolls before diving down on Muroc and beating up the airfield at 300 feet, before zooming back up to 35,000 feet and hitting Mach 0.85, the fastest the X-1 had been. Jaeger was slapped down hard and agreed to live by the rules from then on, perhaps. They were now in uncharted territory, and in small increments they built up the speed. At 0.86, the shock buffeting started. Controls became sluggish, and they encountered a wing drop as the shock waves moved back and forth on the wings. At 0.88, the ailerons were vibrating, and it was hard to stay wings level. At 0.94, there was unusual buffeting, and pulling back on the stick had absolutely no effect. The elevators had ceased to function. They had reached a dead end, but then Jack Ridley suggested using the electric tailplane trim to control pitch. Nobody disagreed. They tested the system on the ground thoroughly and then flew again. Ridley was right. Above 0.94, the trim gave just enough pitch to keep the X-1 controllable. They reached 0.96, but then the windshield, tiny windows of perspex, with a poor enough view at the best of times, frosted over. Chuck had to be talked down into a position to land by the chase plane, and using instruments alone, he lined up and safely landed on the lake bed. From then on, they coated the windscreen with green shampoo, until the Air Force came up with something else that cost $18 a bottle. Then heading out to dinner, Jaeger fell off his horse, knocking himself out and breaking a couple of ribs. The pain was intense, and a local doctor taped him up. But could he fly? The next day, Chuck took Jack aside, and they jerry-rigged a broom pole to let him lever the door shut. Most other things he could do with his right hand, which wasn't a problem. The next flight, the ninth, was to Mach.97. In his leather jacket, Jaeger painfully climbed into the X-1 cockpit and put on the makeshift helmet that he'd made himself from a wartime tank helmet. By now, the bright orange X-1 had glamorous Glenis painted on her nose. With difficulty, he levered the hatch shut and prepared himself. 
If this went well, the next flight would be the one. In the cockpit, he was semi-prone, squeezed in with his knees higher than his shoulders. He took hold of the control yoke, shaped like an H, with the critical switches mounted on it. The countdown started, and then with a pop, like a snapping cable, they dropped him, the jolt lifting him off his seat, shoulders straining against the straps. Into the bright sunlight it was a struggle to see and to get the X-1 flying as it was heavy with fuel, and the drop was again too slow. The moment he got her under control he fired all four rocket chambers in quick succession and felt the force of the rockets pushing him in the back. Once up to speed, he turned two chambers off and levelled at 42,000 feet, doing Mach 0.92, fuel left. Flicking number three back on, the little machine accelerated, and Jaeger noticed that the faster he went, the smoother things became. He was indicating Mach 0.96 when the needle began to fluctuate. It reached Mach point nine six five and then went right off the scale. Chuck Yeager was thunderstruck. Hey Ridley, he called. This mock meter's acting screwy. It just went off the scale on me. Son, came the reply. You're imagining things. Down in the NACA tracking van, the guys interrupted to report that they had just heard thunder. A sonic boom, the first to be heard on the planet Earth. Telemetry showed that the X-1 had reached Mach 1.07. The sound barrier had just been smashed. Of course, things for Lieutenant Chuck Yeager didn't finish there. He was only 24 years old and had a lifetime of achievement ahead of him. But this single event changed his fortunes forever, even if he wasn't allowed to tell anyone since it was classified secret until 1948. He continued to break records in the X-1 and the X-1A, reaching Mach 2.44 at 80,000 feet during a flight when his aircraft became uncontrollable due to inertia cross-coupling and fell 51,000 feet before Jaeger could regain control. Primarily an Air Force fighter pilot, though, Chuck would fight in the Vietnam War and go on to command squadrons, wings, and as a brigadier general, he would command the 17th Air Force. He wore the Distinguished Service Medal, the Silver Star with Oak Leaf Cluster, the Legion of Merit with Cluster, the Distinguished Flying Cross with two clusters, the Bronze Star Medal for Valor, the Purple Heart, the Air Medal with two silver clusters, the Air Force Commendation Medal, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He would be inducted into halls of fame around the planet. Chuck Yeager died on the 7th of December at the age of 97. And although the world of aviation will mourn his passing, we'll also celebrate the man he was. Irreverent, cocky, full of confidence and ability. 
one of a rare breed of pilots that truly pushed the envelope to its absolute limit. What a guy. What a guy. What, what a, a pilot. Fantastic. Just unbelievable. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I know. It was, it's actually very exciting to read his life story. Um, he, what, you've just got to take into account that he, he was an egotistical man and you know, absolutely sure of his own ability, which makes him come across as pretty high-handed. But mm. there was no doubting his confidence in his ability, his skill. Um, and, of course, people like to follow people with confidence. He was a great leader as well as everything else. Um, yeah, uh, and he did it. So what the hell? Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. I love the man. Oh, yeah. I was just watching The Right Stuff again last night. and uh, Oh, right. Yeah. yeah it was a uh, great story, isn't it? Yeah. They took a couple of little, you know, Hollywood uh, liberties. Liberties, yeah. Did you know that uh, um, Chuck Yeager was in the film? No. Where was he in the ah, film? Ah, there you go. He was uh, serving behind the bar at uh, the um, uh, Happy Bottom uh, mm -hmm. Riding Club. Uh, he was the barman. So he was the old looking barman behind the oh, bar. Oh, how about that? Uh, Didn't know that. Yeah. Very cool. Absolutely. Fantastic story. You know, yeah, I know they, they really were at the cutting edge and they were working with equipment that would seem so primitive to us, but uh, they just made it happen. You know, it's a bit like the Apollo story. You know, they, they come of the kit they worked with was so basic compared with what we have available now, mm -hmm, but yeah. they just got on and did it. They're brilliant, brilliant. Well, you mentioned that, you know, he had that confidence and, and he was very, very cocky. And you know you all, you had to be to be a test pilot in that in that era I think or maybe even all eras but anyway I remember a story you remember the um, trying to remember the the uh, mission Bert Rattan and somebody else and they flew the uh, airplane completely around the world in one the, tank of fuel the composite airplane yes I'm mm -hmm. trying to remember I, I, what it was called I forgot now. exactly what it was called but. Uh, somebody had asked Jaeger what he thought about that amazing feat. <laughs> now, again, this is all hearsay, or I didn't, you know, hear it myself, and I, I, it was secondhand information to me. But I heard that his response was, "Well, you put a big enough fuel tank on something, you can fly forever." <laughs> and I was thinking, "Whoa, well, okay." But I mean, they non-mincing words, huh? <laughs> but they had to fly at pretty low altitudes in this thing, and through amazingly uh, bad weather and systems and thunderstorms and everything else, and avoiding them because this thing was very fragile. And uh, I'm thinking it really took a lot for that uh, that team to uh, to fly all the way around the world on that one tank of gas, and then just that comment again attributed to him. I don't know for sure that he said that or not, and I thought, huh. Well, what a jerk he is! <laughs> but well, you know, my, you, my my question here is uh, yeah. how how did he feel sitting in the back of that uh, tandem F fifteen? They're having to sit in the back. Oh <laughs> yeah, probably wasn't happy about that either. Would have been too happy about that. <laughs> well, either. he wasn't a very young man, and he was actually very gracious because they uh, oh, asked him okay. what it was like to fly it, and he said, "Well, I was just sitting in the back." Thanks. Yeah, okay. But the the other pilot piped up and said, "Well, <laughs> uh, Major." Uh, 
he was a uh, brigadier general, brigadier general Yeager. Uh, he did all the flying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. When they asked uh, about he, that, he, he I said, think he'd learned humility. It was very funny. Um, in his early parts of the book um, of his life, there are uh, lots of sections written by his contemporaries, um, one of which was the boss and a senior guy in the test pilot school. And they said at that time in his career, Jaeger could hardly uh, put enough put words in a sentence to make it make sense. He said he was terribly badly spoken. He could hardly write. He said he was, uh, you know, he really did um, struggle uh, with a lot of that. Um, And it was only the Air Force that brought him on, and he became incredibly eloquent, very well written. He he became, uh, the Air Force really made him as a man. But uh, in those early days, they said, you know, he could hardly string two words together. No one could understand him. (laughs) Which I found now, Nick, where where was the uh, where was and how did the disconnect or how did the why why didn't he ever transition from um, being an Air Force test pilot and moving on to um, to to NASA, for example, or being selected as, as one of the uh, uh, first uh, first astronauts? As well, it might have been his lack of education. I think those early astronauts all had very uh, extensive degrees in engineering uh, mm-hmm. and yeah. equivalents, um, aeronautics, etc. He had nothing. He, he, he graduated high school, but that was about it. Um, right. uh, so I think that was one of the things that probably held him back. And uh, I, I suspect, quite honestly, um, once he'd done the big things in flight test, he wanted to move on, get back to the fight. He w- wanted to get out of the Vietnam War. He wanted to be a squadron commander. He mm. wanted to lead people. Uh, and that's what he ended up doing. That was, and of course, you know, the f- we're talking about the first five years of his Air Force career. Uh, he had another 20 or 30 years of achievement ahead of him, which, of course, is impossible to cover in just uh, 20 minutes. But, uh, you know, he carried on doing incredible things. He really yeah. did. Hamish helped us out. Uh, he says Voyager was the first non-refueled circumnavigation. Rutan right. and Jana Yeager, no um, relation to Chuck. Uh, the aircraft hangs in the lobby of the National Aerospace Museum here in D.C. Um, thank you. Yeah, along with uh, the Bell X-1. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Bell X-1 is there. Oh, you know what? And the, uh, he was also quoted as saying after that F-15 ride, somebody asked him, what did you think about you know the difficulty of flying an F-15? And he said any monkey could do it. No, I'm just kidding. That's true. He didn't but say having that. said that, <laughs> Andy monkey, monkey like Colonel Jeff. Um, but uh, having said that, he did love the airplane. He thought it was a fantastic airplane. I know. I'm just kidding. I made that up. So, all you haters out there, I'm offended at airlinepilotguy.com. Uh, the other thing, the other story that I have, I know we're we're dwelling on Jaeger, but he, you know, he's worthy to be dwelled upon. Um, Absolutely. is the story that uh, when I was working, the last job that I had in the Air Force before I left was a wing safety officer, and our office was located in the base operations of the uh, Columbus Air Force Base. And a lot of times, that's where transit aircraft would come through the uh, base and do, do their you know flight planning and filing and uh, weather briefings and that kind of thing. And uh, there was a, um, a Harrier uh, that was parked out. I think it was uh, there because of um, 
a hurricane or something like that. They, they had to fly the thing away from the coast, wherever it was based, to get away from the hurricane that was coming from wherever, whatever the hurricane was at that time. And um, and it was stuck there for a few days because the, the engine had some kind of an issue. And uh, so I was talking with them, and I don't know how we ended up talking about Colonel Yeager or, or um, General Yeager, I guess. Uh, and he said that uh, he had the opportunity to fly in one of the two-seaters with uh, with Chuck Yeager. And he said the Harrier is a very, very difficult airplane to fly, especially hover, uh, do the vertical takeoff and landing. And uh, I guess the uh, F-35 is much easier, a lot more computer control and everything else. But the Harrier did not have all those fancy things helping you out. And he said it, he, uh, from the moment he touched the controls on this Harrier jet, he was like, hovering the thing and flying it. I mean, he was amazingly naturally talented as far as stick and rudder skills. And he said he was just blown away how he could possibly do that well for the very first time he could, he touched the controls. So oh, yeah. quite a gift. I mean, uh, he famously well. called Bob Hoover, the greatest stick and rudder man he knew, mm -hmm. but I suspect he still thought he was number two besides himself. Chuck Yeager. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> because yeah. I tell you that book goes on to describe those two. Uh, Bob Hoover was his chase pilot mm -hmm. when he was flying the X one um, on several of their missions. When he'd done what he meant to do, he and uh, Bob Hoover had a dogfight, and they fought these, the chase aircraft and this buddy X one, he said, which was built so strong, it would, you know, he would die before the aircraft came apart. That's how strong it was. Uh -huh. uh, and he said he always shot him down because actually the X1, despite having incredibly thin wings, uh, was light because they had no fuel. And uh, he was gliding and it turned really well. And he said he always waxed his ass. So <laughs> <laughs> I could just imagine these two. They've, they've done their test flying and now they're having a dogfight on the way back down to uh, to land at uh, the lake bed. I mean, what, what a tip. Yeah, man. Brilliant. Sounds like a book that I'd like to read. Yeah, the one I've got, I think I bought when I was out in Australia. It's just called Jaeger. Jaeger. It's his autobiography. Very nice. I've had a few Jaegers in my life. Oh, that's a different uh, thing. Um, all right. Well, well done, sir. And um, our salute goes to uh, Chuck Jaeger. May he rest in peace. And uh, I'm sure he is in good company at this time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Those. You seen that cartoon? Yeah. Liz I was thinking of that cartoon. Oh, that is just brilliant. Mm -hmm. Cartoon of uh, uh, Chuck Yeager eventually walking back into Pancho's uh, bar, and there's all the other dead test pilots there, and someone's saying, "Hey, Chuck, what took you so long?" <laughs> that was great. Very yeah. nice. Very good. All right. Let's uh, resume the feedback with item four. Um, let's see. I was wondering if Rick could talk a little bit. Rick, talk about something technical? No. That's impossible. <laughs> no, can't, can't happen. Yeah. I, I was wondering if Rick could talk a little bit about extremely cold cargo. With the advent of the new Pfizer vaccine that must be maintained at minus 70 degrees Celsius, meaning that it's shipped in dry ice, how are large volumes of that handled as aircraft cargo? Well, um, with anything that needs to be kept at very, very low temperatures, uh, we we carry um, lots and lots of dry ice to be able to keep uh, the cargo at those low temperatures. And so 
the issue with dry ice here is that dry ice is solid carbon dioxide. So, and it and that is classified as a hazardous material, not because it's combustible or anything like that. It's just because it displaces oxygen at a very, very high rate. And so, um, a lot of the, uh, well, not, not a lot of, but, you know, just, just Western-made aircraft, um, the uh, pressurization air conditioning system is it doesn't uh, discriminate between the uh, I guess the supernumerary or the or the, the area where the flight crew is and the uh, the cargo area and so that that air is it's 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 one you know big uh, balloon that you pressurize with air tapped from the engines and so there's no way of isolating uh, the cargo decks from the part of the aircraft that is uh, crewed. And so there are limits to the amount of dry ice that you can take. And, um, and there's guidelines as to where uh, this uh, dry ice can be placed. And for example, in passenger aircraft, obviously, you cannot have uh, dry ice uh, in the, the part of the aircraft that carries passengers and crew because of that very same issue, the fact that uh, uh, dry ice will displace oxygen. And so um, anytime there's dry ice on board, uh, we are made aware of this via a, uh, a document called the NOTOC, which is a notice to captain. And uh, the, the, the captain of the flight will review this document. It'll uh, tell you where this uh, dry ice is located and the amount of dry ice that you have. And you have to make sure that the amount of dry ice is less than um, what you can uh, uh, legally carry for safety reasons. And so it, it, it changes from aircraft to aircraft and from location to location. So for example here, I'm uh, referring to the uh, um, Dangerous Goods uh, a Manual and also a chapter in the Flight Operating Manual, uh, yeah, the FOM, the Flight Operating Manual for my particular airline here. And so, for example, here says here that the 747 in the main deck, you can carry up to uh, 2,000 kilograms, that's uh, 4,400 pounds of dry ice in the main deck, and you can carry um, 1,100 pounds in the lower decks, uh, 1,100 pounds in the front lower deck and 1,100 pounds in the aft lower deck. And so it, 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 uh, it, uh, you make sure that your numbers are, uh, are below that. Now, I understand we have a, a very interesting bit of uh, feedback here that um, differentiates uh, Western-built aircraft from Russian-built aircraft and uh, I found that very, very interesting. Uh, actually, that's that's something that I I, I didn't know. That's uh, quite interesting. What? What? You didn't know something? <laughs> oh my gosh! No, I, I wow, no this idea. is quite a moment. I, I guess here. that's because of all the holes in the <laughs> Russian airplane. <laughs> yeah, um, we or I was doing a little. Re or no, who said that in? I think it was uh, Christian Base. Uh, yeah, Chris. Yeah, Christian yeah, he said uh, he sent us the link to this article: Dry Ice, the Russian AN-124 freighter. Uh, it's COVID vaccine advantage. And uh, you want to talk more about that, Rick, or uh, you want me to take it? No, so sure. I can I can talk about it. Yeah. So basically it says here that, uh, let me see here. I can, I can read off it. So it's the, the AN-124 is a massive cargo plane that often carries generators from farm equipment. Volga Nepper says it can play a role in COVID vaccine distribution. 
Uh, most aviation professionals don't envision the Russian, the Russian-built AN-24 super freighter plane a role in COVID vaccine distribution because it's an older, drafty plane often used to haul extra heavy oversized cargoes. Uh, think helicopters, turbines, and trucks. But the AN-24, AN-124, has a unique advantage that could make it useful. It has no limits on dry eyes. And it says here that that could be a critical factor when trying to quickly get large amounts of temperature-sensitive vaccine to people around the world, especially in less developed areas. And when air freight capacity is already scarce because of strong trade and widespread closure of passenger operations. Uh, says here that uh, we'll talk about uh, the, t the temperature requirements for, for some of these vaccines, which uh, the, the, the Pfizer one here uh, has to be kept at uh, minus 70 degrees Celsius, which is quite, a, quite cold. And then Moderna has got to be kept at minus 20 Celsius. And, and, and it goes down here to talk about no limit. It says here that rules uh, changes aren't necessarily with the AN-124 because... The more spacious the cargo cabin, the more dries that is allowed under uh, international dangerous goods regulations. Also, the AN-124, and this is what I was talking about, has a special ventilation system that is separate from the crew cabin. So, these uh, th the fact that uh, solid uh, carbon dioxide, which again is what dry ice is, the fact that it displaces oxygen doesn't affect the AN-124 because the... Uh, the system that uh, regulates air to the crew is completely separate from that of the uh, cargo compartment, which obviously makes it uh, uh, just the perfect aircraft for this type of operation. I did think it was interesting, though. The owner of the uh, Volga Nepper uh, also operates a large fleet of Boeing 747 freighters. He kind of made it sound like that they would be that the 747 was the most efficient airplane to use in the transportation of vaccines and not the 124. But um, I thought that was kind of an interesting comment. I would have thought they would have, you know, really monopolized or, uh, or I don't know the word. Um, anyway, uh, you know, took advantage of just right. Just use, 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 yeah. use the AN-124 because of this. But I mean, I, I mean, uh, you, you talk about, you know, you compare the AN-124 to the 747, uh, you're talking about uh, right off the bat, 747, you're talking about speed. You know, mm -hmm. the 747, you're, you're talking, you know, 8.5 Mach, and that's on the low end of the speed scale for 7.4. Uh, um, and then uh, there's a lot more uh, operating 747s around it. And, and I. Uh, I've seen these uh, air, uh, air bridge cargo uh, airplanes all over the place, and I certainly think that they have more uh, 747s than they have uh, AN-124s, because I don't believe they make it with the AN-124 anymore. Is this, I don't believe no, it's no, in no, no, production. No, uh, there, there aren't that many in civilian use, I think, about 30. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not a huge number. And anyway, a large number of them have been grounded since that uh, accident they had. Uh, ex oh, exactly the right. That's another point. Recently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, even less flying at the moment. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a serious uh, advantage, quite honestly. If you want to move uh, this stuff around, you could corner every uh, freighter in the world, quite honestly, because the world needs the stand vaccine, and the rest of the world's rubber dog can stay on the ground, quite honestly. We need to get this stuff where it needs to go. So, yeah. uh, if you need yeah, to, uh, just pull the like stop sign. Apologize out, for the use of that language by uh, Captain <laughs> Nick. It will be censored in the audio only version. 
yeah, sorry about that. Uh, I was merely quoting someone else. Yeah, it's a, a, uh-huh. a famous, that a famous doesn't movie. Get you off the hook. <laughs> Is it not? No, oh, sorry. <laughs> Oh, no, but I, I found it really interesting. I had no idea that uh, the uh, the uh, AN124 had um, an isolated system to uh, for uh, for the main deck and yeah. main deck ventilation. And I thought that was really no really idea interesting. either. That was an interesting article. Thank you, Christian. Oh, and by the way, uh, Micah is the one that sent in that original feedback, and I did not mention that when we started uh, doing that piece of feedback there. So yeah, thank you, Micah. Good one. All right. Um, kind of winding down here so we're i can tell you right now i I doubt that we're going to be able to get to every piece of feedback that we have in our feedback folder but that's okay because we'll just move it on to the next episode but uh, this one from mike uh good day crew uh can you guess he's from down under uh he's from auckland new zealand uh love the story captain jeff recalled episode 449 around the fms issue where something didn't feel right but put it down to being new Having been trained on various turboprops, currently a Q300 captain, I too have had similar things happen, mostly insignificant minor things where you have something like this, but blame yourself first every time. Let's be honest. It usually is us typing something silly in or doing something out of sequence. True. (laughs) That seat of the pants feeling of something doesn't feel or look right, be it something like this or when you're flying is such an important skill that can't be taught, but earned through years of experience. I found using the words, quote, it doesn't normally do this, goes a long way to explain to the engineers, mechanics, an issue, which they normally then sit up and take a closer look. I really appreciated your story. Merry Christmas to you and the crew. Again, Mike uh, in Auckland, New Zealand. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree one hundred percent. You know, you that uh, you get that uh, that feeling in the pit of your stomach going. Nah, I don't know. You know, of course, so. it's better if you actually recognize what the problem is, so you exactly. don't have to rely on some nebulous feeling. You go, oh, right. that display is oh, there we go because exactly. that's in the wrong place. But if you have to rely on your feelings, fair enough. You know, feelings, <laughs> nothing more than feelings. Uh, I have a feeling Google's already sending the email to me. Okay. Um, well, you can pay yourself royalties then. Oh, yeah. Good idea. Uh, number six from Richard. Um, Cessna 172 enters runway without permission. Radio misunderstanding. Uh, he said, another case of non-standard RT causing an issue. And then he gives us a link to this uh, YouTube video. And we do have that, uh, Liz. If you want to go ahead and play yes, this sorry, right YouTube there. video, okay? Uh, yeah, got it. From Bass Aviation, uh, November one three zero seven Golf has just landed on runway one seven. Zero seven golf. You can turn left there at Foxtrot. Where are you parking? Over. Unintelligible. Yeah, probably Bravo Charlie. Stand by. I got an aircraft just sitting on the runway. I said the zero seven golf. Where are you gonna park? Uh, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know where to. Says there's seven golf. 
just stop your aircraft then. So zero seven golf, what is it that you need while you're here? Just need to depart okay, again. There we go. Now we got this figured out. Why don't you just make a one eighty and hold short of the runway? Cessna 4, Victor Uniform, runway 17, uh, you cleared option. You can uh, turn right on course, maintain 6,000 on the go. Okay, 17 clear for the option and then uh, direct on course up to 6,000, 4, Victor Uniform, thanks. Yeah, there. Cessna's turned around. Right, now it's just going to go short. Turn around. Holding short, runway 17. November 1307, Golf, Salina Tower, continue holding. Continue holding. Okay, he understands that. Four Victor Uniform has crossed out, guys. Four Victor Uniform, Roger. A next communication is about three minutes later. Silences and other transmissions have been deleted. Salina Tower, N1. Three zero seven golf short at Parkshot. Look at the for takeoff to the southwest. So one three zero seven golf, so on the entire continue holding. And I'm sorry about all that. Confusion. seven golf, continue holding, continue holding, not rolling, continue holding. Going around four big one. Just a four victory uniform, Roger, go around, and you can enter a left downwind, or actually just proceed right on course. Four victory uniform proceeding on a course, thanks for the help. Cessna 1307 Golf, runway 17 at Foxtrot, clear for takeoff. And one three zero seven go fifth take off. Center four Victor Uniform contact Kansas City Center. Over to center. Good luck, four Victor Uniform. Thank you. Salina Tower N one three zero seven go. I am so so sorry about that. So zero seven golf. Just listen a little bit more carefully. Yes, sir. Both aircraft continued safely. Interesting. He didn't get a uh, he didn't get a phone number to call. Well, I think it's because he was a solo student pilot, so he has no. Yeah, even oh, then, yeah. maybe you know, having a talk to somebody. Yeah, you're right. You know, talking to you, that'll that'll set you that'll set you straight early on in your career. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. Now, a lot of people... I thought you know, the hold short was the standard... Yeah, okay. So, standard radio terminology yeah, may have that's helped. that's true. Although, I must say, and now, you know, watching this once more than I did yesterday, um, the first time he said, continue holding, he read back, continue holding, and he understood what Tower meant by that, and he continued holding short. Um, and then the second time, he understood him to say, continue rolling, which I've never heard anybody say that. Um, no, but he's a student pilot. He's, you know, not had not have he hasn't been exposed to a lot of radio terminology, um, and he assumed that he wanted him to go onto the runway and take off. But without hearing, 
without hearing clear for takeoff. You know what I mean? I can I can go both ways with this and saying, oh, yeah, if he had said hold short, then perhaps he that would have like made his brain cells click in the right direction and go, okay, I'm yeah. just going to stay put. Uh, I, I was really, really referring to the fact that he'd misunderstood the, the holding for rolling. Mm-hmm. So repeating the same words when you're trying to get him to stop mm-hmm. um, isn't actually going to help because he's already made that mistake once. Right, right. He's probably going to make it again. Yeah, hold so short, hold short. Use a yeah, different stop. phrase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I was, a, uh, Yeah, I was kind of surprised as well that he didn't say, you know, hold short or stop, stop or something that yeah. was clear and not – yeah, yeah, using the same un- misunderstood words. Um, but yeah, that was the only point I was making. Yeah, I yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree, I agree with And, you know, and, and standard radio um, terminology is, or phraseology is important uh, by both parties. And, uh, yeah, so I guess you could put a little blame on both sides for this one. Um, but uh, fortunately uh, for Victor Uniform, the uh, airplane that was doing the option uh, was, you know, you know, paying attention to the situation, keeping situational awareness and saw that this guy had crossed over the whole short line and was going onto the runway. And he said, yeah, going around. Yeah. Yeah. And for this, I, I realize what- he's a student, but we all three would have looked down the approach lane to make sure there's no one yeah. on the approach before mm-hmm. we take well, the runway, even though we've been given a clearance. In fact, so. yeah, yeah. That's, that's something that's, uh, that's in our, in our, uh, uh standard operating procedures. So, mm-hmm. you know, Exactly. You make sure that uh, you, so you do two things. You make sure that the runway that's in front of you is a runway that that in fact is the one you're going to be taken off from, and then two, you make sure that there's nobody in finals. Um, and also, uh, for those uh, out there that don't know what the option means, it basically means that you're clear to either do a low approach, a touch and go, or a full stop landing. So that you have the option to do either one of those three. So that's what the option means. It's always good to have options. Exactly. You keep your options open. Um, Liz makes a point saying that based on what she could hear in the uh, in the video or the audio of the video is that it uh, didn't sound like English was his native language, perhaps. And that might be another factor in it. He did sound like he had some kind of an odd accent or not a uh, yeah. American accent. but uh, Which is, you know, even why it's it's even more so. It's only why it's so important to make sure that you use standardized aviation phraseology i think that uh, and you know and uh even 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 airline pilots uh we are sometimes uh guilty of uh not using standard phraseology and uh, that's just just what happens sometimes i know and that's yeah and and it's sometimes it's easy to do you know you get lazy or you say something that you think is kind of clever but mm-hmm. usually that's the wrong thing to do. It's always the wrong thing to do, actually. Yeah, Just use yeah, the right terminology all the time. And that way you don't have, you know, you don't have troubles like this. So anyway, uh, let's see here. We're getting close to the end of the show. Don't worry. I think we still have time left on planet Earth. Um, seven from Robert. <laughs> he sends us a picture. Uh, maybe, Liz, you can... Uh, put the overlay up of this um, would be quite an inter- interesting ride on this uh, most new series. It's an a three thirty dash 100 most <laughs> right behind it. It says on this toy airplane, most new series first to fly. <laughs> and uh, this is from Robert in uh, Mayretta. <laughs> um, I'm thinking that it was something like it went something like this. This is a toy store. Hey, Joe. Yeah. Okay, I got a fuselage of 747. I can't find the wings. 
Oh, just use any any wings. The three thirty wings. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> a slap on. Uh, so it's like a twin engine seven forty seven ish Built by airplane. Airbus. <laughs> Built by Airbus, exactly. A, a big A three thirty on the tail. But I was going to say, it's got a 747 front end of the fuselage, <laughs> but the back end has got A330 written on it, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, 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 yeah, it's, got, it's written on it, but the, 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 the tail has got the characteristic 45-degree sweep of the vertical stabilizer. The oh, yeah. That, and the and APU bulbous, tail cone, so that's all 74 yeah. there. The bulbous now, uh, knob on the back. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> and the aircraft right. wing does say, it does say aircraft A330 on the top of the wing, so... You know, yeah. obviously it's a three thirty. Yeah. First to fly, wasn't that a right flyer? So I think so. Doesn't look anything like a right flyer. No, no, no. no. That, and that's definitely not Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. So, uh, yeah. And uh, Steph should know. She's been there. Yeah. <laughs> Steph, come back. Hey, have, have you? Um, hey. Is this the airplane they flew at Kitty Hawk? I'm pretty sure it's similar. <laughs> I've been yeah, there. Yeah. I took the tour. Did the whole. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Guide, you know, National Park Guide, or it's not National Park, but a uh, National Park Service does their whole uh, spiel about the history of First Flight and the Wright mm -hmm. Brothers, and yeah, they have a model in the uh, visitor center there as well, and yeah, looks pretty close. just like that. Pretty yeah. close. Do they do they mention the fact that uh, Dayton, Ohio, was the birthplace of aviation in the U.S.? <laughs> just why would anyone say that? <laughs> North Carolina and Ohio, they're they're always like. Button heads on this one. Yeah, that's that's not right. Yeah. So I'll fight anyone who wants to. <laughs> so is Dayton where the Wright brothers were born? Or they where they had their bicycle shop? Yeah, they, they had the, the bicycle, bicycle shop. shop there. Yeah. yeah. Correct. But where so shouldn't it be the birth <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't it be the birthplace of bicycles shops or something? <laughs> well, yeah, it doesn't have the same ring to it. I mean, no. As the birthplace of I'll give them I'll give them due credit for, you know, living and working in that area and coming up with their designs, but where do the where did their aircraft actually fly? Not Ohio. No, that's true. Well, not mm -hmm. right away, anyway. Later, hey, maybe. <laughs> Where did it first fly? Let's be specific. <laughs> yeah. Hamish, this is actually a Bobus ARJ-327. Oh, good point. <laughs> a Bobus. Okay. I love it. Someone recognized it. Specifically, like the Bobus ARJ-327i Neo, I think. <laughs> Yeah, good eyes there, Hamish. <laughs> good eyes. All right. You know what? I think that's going to do it for today's right. show. I think we're over the three-hour point, and we're you know we're going to put everybody out of their misery. <laughs> so I think, and just well, in I joined back in to put to, to uh, not be in misery anymore. But okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, we can go a little bit more if you'd like, just to kind of no, no, put the fine. right okay. No, well, we're glad that you came back in the last 30 seconds of the show, and, or at least <laughs> hey, you, somebody had to do the social media thing, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Couldn't <laughs> leave it up to Nick. No, uh, he'd screw it all up. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I have done several times this uh, show. <laughs> all right, time for the wrap-up of the show. Um, and uh, let's see, if you're... Well, welcome to the show, if you're new. Um, if you want to learn more about us, the crew... Uh, or the community, which is the best part of all of this, uh, please head over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website where you'll find all that kind of thing, including information about merchandise and the coffee fund and plane tales and the library and 
the APG calendar, and so much more. Again, AirlinePilotGuy.com. And we're on social media, or what we like to call the social means. We are indeed. So head on over to Twitter. We are at APG Crew. You can find our individual uh, Twitter account information pinned to the top of that page. And then you could also head over to Instagram, where we're also at APG Crew. Um, Occasionally, I try to make sure I uh, repost Nick's very um, delightful artwork for each episode (laughs) from his own page. It is. If you haven't, if you don't check it out, you really should. Um, And then, last but not least, Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. Yeah. There you go. So join us there. We'll see you on the social meds. We're on that. Or alternatively. Yeah. I was going to say, if if those aren't your thing, perhaps Slack. Very good. I just messed up your complete segue there. I'm sorry. That's fine. Um, All right. And there's no way to fix that in post. Sorry. Uh, Let's see if we can uh, see if uh, Hillel is available for telling us about. Oh, there he is in the darn shower again. It's time for Slack. Hillel. I know you always are. Um, let's see. Let's see what he has to say about it. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Mind if I use your razor, Jeff? Yes, I do mind. All right. And we also like to uh, throw out another big round of applause for nope, uh, this one here. Yeah. For our producer-director in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Liz Piper, for all the hard work. And guess what? She is with a new MacBook. It came early, so she is so happy. A very puppy and a MacBook. Happy. Very nice. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening and downloading and reviewing and you know, spreading the news, uh, word of mouth and all that kind of stuff to people out there. Um, we uh, couldn't do this without you. So we do appreciate that. And with that, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly a oh, Airline pilot
Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how guy I fly